This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. I'm a photographer who's always looking at photo guidelines. I want to know who's making those great photos. In the middle of Montana, in the tackle shop, I found Jessica Hadel Richardson. Don't let the sweet Canadian accent fool you. She is one of the most competitive photographers in the business. A wonderful and talented commercial photographer shooting everything from landscapes, product photography, travel, and wildlife. And of course, if you talk to a true Canadian, you're going to end up talking about hockey. I kind of changed as a player. I, I used to be an insanely offensive player, and I think everybody's really, really good. And, and then all the really good players get to college, and then you're then in amongst a bunch of really good players, and then then you kind of settle into where you belong. And I ended up becoming a third line checker, which was needed, and and it was my part, and I just played my part. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from world-class chefs, Silver Star recipients, pro baseball players, sports writers, and University of Kentucky athletic photographer, Chet White. Now everything's here today, gone tomorrow. You know, back then it's like, you know, you took your time taking one picture. And sometimes you didn't have very many left. So it, it helped me kind of learn how to look through a viewfinder. Um, and though I didn't know it then, but to make an image. I think film helps you do that. It helps you make an image, not just take a picture. I think you're a little bit more thoughtful using film, and it's a great way to learn. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Chet on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor for diving into my conversation with Jessica Hadel Richardson. I've got a Canadian living in Montana who, by the way, is a world-class hockey player. How are you, Jessica? I'm good, but I don't know about world class. My goodness. I didn't make it to the Olympics or no, anything. No, no, no. Okay. I know this podcast <laughs> could jump into any conversation. We're, we're going to go right into hockey. Right into hockey. I've got your stats up. You played 130. Oh, my dear Lord. Yes. 130. You found those? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the best part of the podcast is research. 132 consecutive games. Yeah. You're I never missed a woman. single game. I am. I got. I mean, if they had that for women in NCAA, I would have gotten an award. I guess I never missed a single game um, throughout my entire hockey career. Thank you. Actually, that's like the one thing I may be proud of from the entire my entire hockey career was that I played college hockey and I didn't and I got injured a lot and I managed to play through all of it. Young so lady, that, that is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I don't care if you go off and have 12 kids, adopt another dozen, playing in 132 hockey games. That's nails. Yeah, and over four years of college and graduating with a degree and traveling and schoolwork and also being like 20-something years old and figuring it all out. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah, okay, so 24 goals, 18 assists. Yeah, I mean, Ooh. I... Walk me through your first college goal. Oh, gosh. I bet can you I think the podcast I, was going this I, well, way. <laughs> no, and, and trying to recall, let's just, can you tell the listeners that I'm turning 40 this year? I'm not ashamed to say it, but I mean, that was like 20-something years ago. Yes, um, yes, it was. Just a preference, 
Um, generally how division one women's college hockey works. If you are not in the Olympics, you're in college hockey, um, or you're at Harvard and you're on the Olympic team. Uh, neither of that, you know, I wasn't on the Olympic team, but, um, I trained my entire youth to get a scholarship to play college hockey. That was my focus in life. And, uh, it feels like so long ago cause it really was so long ago, but, Freshman um, year, 2002, 2003. Yeah, and it was a long time ago. Um, but my first goal, my goodness. Walk me through your first goal. It was maybe goal. Niagara University. I don't know if I can even remember the first goal. I probably have the puck here. I have like memorabilia. Does it say what it was? Was I it Niagara found University? It. I went to Elmira or, I got through, or Niagara? I went through box scores, everything. November oh 11th, God. 2003 versus Niagara. Second It period. was Niagara. Second. So Niagara was. Um, Niagara University in New York, um, they, for some reason, I had my best games against them. They actually offered me a hockey scholarship and a soccer scholarship because I played soccer for 14 years and they, they offered me a dual scholarship and then they kind of like dinked me around a little bit when it came time to like signing and I walked away from it. And then Wayne State University um, kind of chased me down. I was in Norway at the time. Uh, visiting family and they called me and I signed, they faxed an agreement there and I signed it while I was in Norway. So I actually had a year break in between high school and, and college hockey. Cause I had a, a very bad injury in between. I actually got kicked in the face in soccer and broke my cheekbone um, and had a really bad concussion and a long recovery, but it was right when you were in Canada at the time, scouting wasn't the same like it is now. Oh yeah, And scouting isn't the same as it is in the U S like it's not, it's, it was harder out of British Columbia to get plucked into the U S system. If you're in Ontario, it was, or Quebec, it was easier because you were so much more in the, you were probably driving to Michigan to play those girls or you were driving to Idaho or New York. Like you were playing in that circuit and people knew of you, but out of BC, it's so small. And so I had a really bad injury that kept me out of all the scouting games for the year 2001 um, so I finished, it was at the, my senior year of high school. I, I got, you know, it was just a bad injury. And, um, so I pl- actually made it onto that NWHL team we had in Vancouver, which they didn't pay you, but it was still the NHL for women. So sure. it was cool. And you didn't really travel that much. There weren't a lot of teams to play. That's, <laughs> but, uh, that's badass to say that my mom was a hockey player. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm a dog mom, so I tell them all that nobody listens to me, and I'm not the boss. So, <laughs> yeah, so I just, um, uh, the hockey, gosh. So Niagara, just for some reason, was the team that I did really well. Um, unfortunately, we had a coach swap um, my second year of college, so I wasn't the new coach's player. Mm. And... Um, I kind of changed as a player. I, I used to be an insanely offensive player and I think everybody's really, really good. And, and then all the really good players get to college and then you're then in amongst a bunch of really good players. And then, then you kind of settle into where you belong. And I ended up becoming a third line checker, which was needed. And, and it was my part and I just played my part. And, you know, at that point getting a free education, right. you know, free housing, free education, um, living in Michigan. I mean, it, it was not a bad situation. It could so, have been worse. Yeah. And I'd like to have contributed more, but again, once you have a coach and you're not that coach's player anymore, um, you're not going to get pulled up to be the main 
that he wants all his people to be the main players. But anyways, needless right. to say, the whole program got cut years later. The coach got fired. So, I mean, uh, alumni still calls me, but I refuse to donate to a school that cut my program. So, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to um, help. But no, so. 132, that is pretty badass to hang your hat on, young lady. A lot of games, man. That was a lot of games and it was cool. And I, for me in college, I did seven years of post-secondary education in total um, between photography and I have a a business degree. Um, But, you know, I think that photography or hockey, sorry, being my main focus for my childhood, my, my teenage years, like I, all I did was train and play and play sports. That's all I did. And I think I needed that focus for education because I was never, that was not my strong suit. I'm uh, dyslexic and not just like when people say dyslexic, I'm like really dyslexic. Um, I'm in that and I struggle. With you. Yeah. And I, I it's interesting because I struggle from uh, reading comprehension, um, just really struggled at math, really struggled at clock reading. I mean, you name it and there was a struggle associated with it. So my entire educational component was a lot of work. And when we got a C minus, my whole family would celebrate because that was exciting. And and in college, I ended up doing a lot better. That format actually worked for me a lot better. Um, I feel like you have study hours, you have maybe almost a little less help at times where by the time I was in high school, people were assigned to me. I had a, someone in class assigned to me yeah. and it was kind of like, Oh, Jess, I'll just read this for you and you can get it done. So I feel like by the time I got to college, yes, there was resources, but I had to kind of decide to make choices on my own and really buckle down. And so anyways, hockey, I think was the structure I needed to get everything done. And I wasn't a party kid or anything like that. And I know I look right. crazy and all, but <laughs> <laughs> it was not. <laughs> um, uh, I, that wasn't my main focus. It was really was playing sports was my main focus. Um, what was it like growing up for you in British Columbia? I have, ha- I had the best childhood, honestly. Um, I have two incredible parents. I have three siblings and, um, my parents are senior, like really old. My dad's 90, my mom's 80. So my mom, if she listens, mom, sorry, you're not really old. Dad is really old though. That's, I mean, that's nineties really old. Um, mom's still got but, a little spring in her step. Oh, mom's cruising. She, I gave her a Garmin watch, um, a couple of years ago and she was like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm hitting like 15,000 steps a day. And I was like, what? Okay. It must be broken. When I come home next to visit, I'll get you all lined up here. Well, I get home, I calibrate it and I'm checking things. And then I just start like observing her and I'm like, no, she's legit doing like 13 to 15,000 steps every day. Meanwhile, I'm trying to hit eight to 10 on my watch. Wow. <laughs> I think it was at like 4,000 yesterday. So um, yeah, mom is just cruising and doing her thing. Um, but yeah, growing up on the West Coast, my dad was a tugboat captain for 47 years. So I grew up on the water. I grew up um, on boats, running boats. Um, I used to run whale watching tours Um uh, in my early twenties there. And, um, I, w- I have a captain's license. And, Do you really? Yeah. And so I used to run 30 foot rigid hall inflatables with like 12 stadium style seating, like guests would be in front and we'd go look at cool things and play in wake. And it's too young to be riding or driving a boat that powerful as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, growing up in Vancouver, it's definitely not the city I grew up in now. It's very busy. My parents don't live in our childhood home anymore. They've 
they've moved. So um, it's just the city's different. And I get home every other month. I try to be there because my dad is quite elderly and in poor health. So try to get there a lot. Um, Try to see everybody. I'm always there at Christmas. um, About a 13 hour drive from here. So it's really not too bad. That's not bad. Um, Yeah. But British Columbia, my heart is Pacific Northwest, honestly, like ferns, green forest, old man beard or old man beard, however you say it. Like, and when you say that to people here in Montana, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's a type of moss. <laughs> I'm like, trust me, it's a type of moss. Yeah. I'm not into old men with beards. <laughs> yeah. Not, not green old men beards, but yeah. And so, um, I'm, I miss that. Um, when I go, thankfully I'm close enough to home that I get that fill. Um, and I love Montana for very different reasons, but growing up in Vancouver was a, an incredible childhood. I spent so much time on the water and exploring and have friends with boats and, um, you know, it just, you were always doing something and there's always somewhere to go. Right. Having your dad, a tugboat captain, did that, I don't want to say harden you, but did it make you not so soft because like you literally got to be on the sea with dad and it's not a easy thing to be moving stuff around. Well, so by the time I came around, um, I'm the youngest of the children and I have a brother. So I'm turning 40 and I have a brother that's like 60. Gosh, I can't remember his age right now. 65. Are you the- so like, I have, yeah, I'm, I'm the miracle child. Uh-huh. Yeah. Miracle. Um, and so uh, he's, he's my half brother. And then I have two older sisters and my one sister and I are fairly close in age. And then I have another sister who's just a few or five years older than me or something. But um, uh, so by the time I came around and I was in diapers, my dad actually transferred to be in the harbor. So he was in the harbor. He wasn't gone for seven, eight days at a time. And he worked for um, C-SPAN, which is uh, now owned by the Washington Corporation. And the Washington Corporation actually owned all the trains here in Montana. They're from Montana, I believe. They own a lot of the trains uh, and I think some tug companies in Seattle. They own a bunch of tug companies in Vancouver. Um, They're a big corporation now. And so when my dad moved back into the harbor, he was, you know, everything from like hauling tugs up the river system, um, assisting cruise ships, um, assisting freighters into port, you know, that kind of stuff. So my dad then was on a two week on, two week off schedule. So he was home almost almost every night. Um, But the cool thing was if mom was a teacher, so she couldn't just like leave school if my dad got a call saying he had to go in. So my dad would call up our elementary school, swing by and grab us. And then we'd head out to the tug and got to hang out on the tug while he's trying to like in storms, while he's trying to like lash ropes and we're playing with all the mics and stuff. And um, it was pretty cool. A few years later after um, the company was purchased, they changed all the restrictions and they changed all the, um, you know, all the, all the red tape stuff to say that's not safe. Um, And they quickly um, didn't allow minors to be on board without a secondary uh, adult that was not a a captain in charge, basically. So we didn't get to go on the tugs as much after that. Um, But I can always see you guys running about in a boat and your dad's at high seas and you're just like, yeah, so much fun. My dad's Norwegian and, um, you know, always had his, never lost his Norwegian accent and uh, immigrated to Canada in 1954, I believe it was. 
And so never lost his accent. No one could ever understand him. Uh, you know, no one ever called him by his actual Norwegian name because they could never pronounce it. So, what is it? Um, yeah, it's Ferre. Okay. So it's S V E R R E. He's named after a king of Norway, Sverre. And um, everybody calls him Stam. Because <laughs> so. I saw the video you did, the captain. And in yeah, there. Yeah, that's my dad. Yeah. And in there, yeah. I think it says Sam. Says Sam, yeah, because they call him Captain Sam. Right. Um, so that was my dad. I made a little video about him. I'm glad I made it when I did because my dad actually has aphasia, which is what um, Bruce Willis just got diagnosed with. Okay. I don't wish it upon anybody. It's pretty terrible. You lose your ability to verbally communicate um, through a series of st- strokes, basically. Uh, so my dad can no longer speak. So I am literally a year from that video, he could not really communicate with us anymore. Wow. So, yeah. So I'm just so really glad, like I've been meaning to do that for a really long time or document something. And I have lots of photos of him, but I'm not like, I wouldn't consider myself to be like a filmmaker specifically. So I'm just really grateful that we did something, um, and he talked through some stuff. I mean, we, I know all the stories and he's sure. talked through them for years, but um, just getting his voice recorded uh, meant a lot to us and to my family and stuff. So yeah, it's a um, beautiful piece. You could definitely tell yeah. it was, you weren't hired to do it for somebody No, like, right. No. It was your dad, you know, could have been maybe your uncle, but it was very endearing and touching the way it yeah. was done. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I also then made like a short little film years back, uh, maybe three, four or before COVID that made it into, um, the, uh, five film fish. No, the F no, I have four or something. One of the <laughs> fishing film fishing tours. And it's a, a little three minute film and it talks about my first fishing memory. And then it, I t- I'm talking about my dad in that. So, you know, it's, it's tough. Um, seeing parents get older, it's part of it. Um, it's probably a little easier for me cause I am so removed from it. And then when I go home, I'm not around it every day where my, my siblings are around it. Um, but you know, dad's still the cruising. Um, he cannot walk anymore. He is in a wheelchair, but I'm um, in Canada, um, not to get into, um, social economics, but having healthcare there, um, my mom has assistance and he's able to be home because of that. So they get carries that come in three times a day and it's all basically covered by the Canadian government. And that allows him to still be home, which is amazing that right. he can at least be home. He's watching a lot of Westerns, which actually I didn't realize how racist Bonanza was. <laughs> I sat down and watched it with him one day and I was like, oh, this is bad. How is this still on TV? Um, and so there's like journeyman or something. There's like all these different. Oh, yeah, the rifleman. The, the, the rifleman. That's yeah. it. Not journeyman. That would be weird. Like a plumber and a, a, a electrician. Um, rifleman. Oh, my God. Trump so he's, he watches all these Westerns and. I, the whole time I'm like, this is shocking. How is this on TV? Um, it was the 60s, so, you know. They weren't yeah, which hire, really wasn't, they weren't it gonna, wasn't a long time ago. No, yeah. They weren't going to hire Native Americans to do it, so they just took some no, and it's, white guy. It is all blackface. Yeah, yeah it's all just, blackface. It's just, it is shocking. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, my God. So, uh, anyways, he, he watches his Westerns. Because and that's it, interesting. I, of all the yeah. things that your dad could be watching right now, it's American TV Westerns. Yeah. I think, you know, when my father came to North America, he actually came into Ellis Island in New York 
as a tourist. So he didn't come in as a immigrant there. Um, he made his way to North Dakota. There's a lot of um, Norwegians in North Dakota. We have a lot of family there. And then he eventually ended up in British Columbia because he had a job set up to log. So this all happened within a year timeline. My father changed our last name from Heydal, O with a dash through it, to Heydal. And I think he did that because he wanted to, in the 50s, basically, you know, um, integrate into society a little bit easier. Right. He could have left it as an O. I always asked him, why don't you just leave it as an O, Heydal, that way. Um so he changed it. And I think that was just part of it. You did everything, um, you know, you could just to be a part of the society at that time. And you could, he never draw that accent though. No, um, that's and never so, leave him at that point. No. And so many people like everybody would just stare at me and they're like, what did he say? And I'm like, what, how do you not understand him? He's not even talking that fast. <laughs> so, um, and then my mother immigrated from Holland in 1952, I believe. And that was, uh, post World War Three, World War Three. Oh my goodness! Sorry, it's just my one God, balloon, Jessica. Don't get sorry. You. It's just a balloon. It's a balloon over Montana. I've got my brain is all scrambled Let's not right spread now. Spread rumors sorry. on the fishing podcast. Gosh, that's terrible. That's terrible. I'm very well educated. I'm sorry. World War Two. Um, Canada was offering open immigration um, for uh, people in different countries, and my family from Holland had lost everything during the war. And so they actually, as a group, came over to into Montreal on a ship and um, spread out through Canada. I have a, a couple cousins here and there. Wow. So my mom has no accent, though, because she was quite young. Okay, so um, yeah, that's a difference. Dad still carried yeah. his thick and wasn't going to let go. <laughs> Dad, mom had Dad no idea. Dad was like idea. 21. Yeah. Yeah, mom was like, uh, my mom would have been 10 years younger than him, and so she had no accent, and Dad was like 21 and thick, thick accent and my parents are multilingual, like can speak many different languages and they never taught us any. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I took Norwegian language lessons and, and in Canada you take French and I just was awful at all of it. So I'm going to blame that on dyslexia. Yeah, and blame I'll blame on it on dyslexia. That's <laughs> just what I did. It hard enough time with English. <laughs> World War three, apparently. So, right, yeah. You know. World War three B's and D's oh, flipping. Man. It didn't matter. Yeah. Huh? So anyways, <laughs> You discover photography in high school. Yeah. Right? Like that starts to become like a little bit of a thing. I think that um, when you're dyslexic, I mean, really, it's crazy. I don't mean to talk about it so much, but I recently just listened to a podcast um, or sorry, a book on tape, audio book um, about dyslexia. I think it was called The Gift of Dyslexia. And I was like, my mind was blown. I'm like, this was published in like 1985, something like that. How did nobody send me a link? And I heard it through Dax Shepard's podcast, The Armchair Expert. Okay. He had Gwen Stefani on and she's recently diagnosed as being dyslexic. So she was talking about some different books. And I listened to a couple of them now and I'm like, you know, it doesn't change anything, but my goodness, it gives me context to everything in my childhood and why it all makes sense, why I was so art focused, why I was so sport focused, um, why I leaned into that and why I was so much better at that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and you go through history of people in the, in history that are dyslexic and a lot of them are artists or Einstein for goodness sake. I mean, you know, it's, it's super interesting. So I was always very artsy. I was always drawing, um, I was a terrible painter, but I always were, I was doodling nonstop. I mean, I have books and books and books of doodling. 
I am a doodler too. You just, you can't. Uh, This morning, as a funny side note, I was, I had my iPad set up. I was drinking my tea, had my iPad set up. I was watching a YouTube instructional video on some camera thing. And on my phone at the same time, I'm flipping through Instagram. And my husband walks in, he goes, what are you doing? Are you even, I'm like, I can't sit still. And I'm not ADHD, but I can't. I need to continually be doing something. So if I didn't have my phone, I would just be doodling while listening to the podcast or to the YouTube video. Like I just need to be drawing. So I was drawing all the time. And um, I used to have a dream where I'd be a cartoonist for Disney. And I stuck to this dream for a really long time. Then in like 95, 96, when did you guys have that really devastating earthquake? Uh, 95, 96. Yeah, 90. Well, we had 92 was the Northridge earthquake. 92, 93. So, 93. 93. My son was born. 93. Yeah. So, when that happened, um, our school went into like, we need to prepare Vancouver for the big one one day because, well, we sit on a fault line too, right? Um, And suddenly, when I heard about that, it kind of like, I don't know what it was because I didn't watch a lot of news, but something terrified me. And I thought, oh, now I can't move to California and be a cartoonist for Disney because they have earthquakes that were like that people died. Sorry, Walt, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, and to have that, like, oh, my God, to have that interpretation as a young child in elementary school because they're making us do earthquake drills every day and hiding under our desk. And I think it was that, like, it actually made me so fearful that I was like, that dream is done. <laughs> I got to find a new one. I am um, not coming to California. <laughs> no, I haven't been to California. I've been to California yeah. many times, but it's just so funny that it like, or it's not, it wasn't funny at the time. I don't know. It was really it's interesting. Though, as a child though, you made that connection. And I have a very, very like vivid memory of when we started doing these earthquake drills. And I remember when it all shut off my brain about, Oh, I can't be a cartoonist. Now, when I look back on those drawings I used to do, let's be honest. It was not on that track. <laughs> I was not on the track to draw f- f- as a business and yeah. to make money drawing. Yeah. Um, they were calling you up to help out in the Lion King, huh? No one, no one was going to call me. No, for that at least. No one's going to call me for that. So the artsy stuff always stuck. And my mom is incredibly artsy. My mom's a really good painter. My mom um, has always been crafty. Um, she's an ele- she's elementary school teacher. You know, my mom has always, I feel like that's, I definitely get that from my mom's side. And so my mom um, had an old camera. And when I was younger, I used to, I've been lucky enough to travel quite a bit, um, go to Norway to see family. When I was three years old, I made my first international trip. So, you know, I've been wow. lucky to go places. And I used to take a lot of I had a little point and shoot. I can't even remember what the first point and shoot was because it wasn't anything to write home about. But I would take a lot of photos and my parents then would pay to develop my film. And my mom finally was like, look, you're old enough now to like learn how to do this. And I'm tired of paying for your film because the images are awful. (laughs) Like, not like that. She didn't say it like that. But it was pretty much like, if you like this, why don't you learn about it? And it wasn't that my (laughs) images were awful. Well, they were, but like, let me just explain to defend they were myself. Child awful. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I knew what I wanted to take a photo of. I could see it. I just didn't know how to work a camera to make to to work the camera. So what I saw would then happen on film. Translated. To, yep. 
translated to film. So when I got into, it was like middle school or high school, I can't remember when we first had access to a darkroom and classes in photography, I jumped on board and my mom gave me, I've got it behind me, her 1979 Minolta, couple lenses, no kids in school really had cameras. And I rolled into class the first day with my old Minolta and it was like, okay, show me, what am I doing wrong here? <laughs> like, what is going on? And um, I just did really well at that class. And I started to spend a lot of time in the dark room. Um, and if I wasn't playing sports, I was in the dark room, developing images, learning about it. And now, yeah, I was around 14, I think at the time. Um, it, it just clicked in my brain and learning how to manually operate your camera to then eventually translate that to what you're seeing. That was the game changer. That's all I needed. I needed the instruction. Um, that's why like today when I talk to a lot of kids, um, when they send me emails, how can I be a whatever photographer? And I'm like, well, you know, first of all, digital has changed it. And I don't oh. think it's bad. I don't think it's bad, but I have to say that, um, I still am a hundred percent believe that if you, uh, invest in your own education, whether you're taking online tutorials or you're paying for, or you're going to college for it, or maybe you're just immersed in YouTube university, whatever you need to do to educate yourself further to help you along, is just going to help. So really in the grand scheme of things, I needed that education to be able to be where I am today. Um, sure. And, and we, I ended up buying a dark room off of my high school teacher. Uh, he had a set for sale. My dad, um, we had a, a, a insulated shed in our yard um, that they called the playhouse. It was weird. It was like a, I don't know why it was called the play. We used to play in there, but it was big and it had like nice floors and there used to be a bunk bed in there. So you could like camp in there and stuff. Um, and so my dad, he was like, I'll build you a dark room in it. And so he went out and bought the biggest industrial fan ever. Cause he was like, you're not getting high in here in his Norwegian act. And I was like, okay, well that's not, I was not like a popular kid, right? Like I wasn't doing anything. I was just a rule follower. And so, um, so we set up, I bought the, the dark room set off my, um, my high school teacher and set up a dark room. And, um, I had it until they sold their house, but I never really used it you know, when, when I left home, I, I didn't go back and use it cause we had other forms, we had digital and stuff, right. but, um, it was because of that dark room, I could start experimenting and shooting a lot and, um, developing and I'm really just like trial by error for the film era. Right. And I'm so grateful for it. And I still shoot film and I love film. I just, it's a place in time. I actually packed a film camera to go with me on my trip on Monday Did you really? uh, to shoot. I did this. So my goal, 2023 goal is every commercial shoot I go on, I want to take a film camera to quickly burst off however many images I can of my subject on film this year. I shoot a lot of interesting photo, uh, photos of people. I, I like get a lot of cool characters I get to work with okay. in the fishing industry. And so because of that, I was like, it'd just be cool to do this as a personal project and make sure that I do it right when we're done our shooting for the day. So I'm not, you know, stepping on client toes or anything. I just want to do it. So I packed my old school Mamiya 645, Whoa. 12 exposures, 120 film, you know, it's a little 80 millimeter lens. So it's yep. about this big. And I threw it in my kit, my kit and I'm going to attempt, I've got three shoots technically um, over the next 
10 days when I leave. And so because I'm, I've got three different boat captains and stuff, and I thought it'd be really cool to try to document each one in black and white. That's great. That is a let great you know how it goes. That is a great camera too, by the way. I wish it's I could get my beast. So <laughs> typical wife, right? I've got mine. I've got it up on eBay. I'm looking for it again. And my wife walks by and goes, didn't you own that camera? I was like, yes, I did 20 years ago, but I might want to go back to it. <laughs> like, I wish I didn't well, sell it. It was such a good camera. You just need to tell her that it's not that expensive. You could be buying a fancy Hasselblad or something. I um, had that and I sold it too. Yeah. Because once well, there was that period, you know, you were, it was, everybody was so in on digital that they just didn't want you shooting film anymore because they needed it transmitted that night, that day. You know, they yep. didn't want to deal with shipping and developing. The time lab was getting shut down. So it was just a nightmare. So if you were still a film shooter, it was like, eh, we're going to call somebody else. Even if the digital wasn't the greatest still in the early 2000s. Yeah, like three megabytes. So my right. first camera was 2005 and it was 10 um 10 megapixels right crop too yeah. that was a that was a crop sensor. crop sensor yeah, yeah. so crop it was sensor a full sensor and it wasn't great at low light no, um, no, no. <laughs> but you know it's, it's so i own about 46 film cameras um now i have why did you yeah. keep them right because owning them you could buy them now you and i can go to the camera store and buy all kinds of old cameras but why yeah did you go through the fact of I'm going to keep keeping them that one. So mom's camera's right behind me. That camera wasn't going to go anywhere. And up until even like the, so I was still shooting film. So I went to college and I went to play hockey and I was still shooting film. And I was actually taking as many photography courses as possible until finally my gu guidance counselor was like, you know, you're a business major, right? <laughs> like, Oh yeah. So stop taking photo courses. But, but I ended up paying my lab at college they allowed me to pay $30 a month to use the lab unlimited. Whoa. And I wasn't even a student of the art department. They're like, yeah, you can come in and use it. And because I just explained to them that I love to do it, but I am a business major. And I thought, well, I'm getting a free education. I need to have something other than an art degree. And that's nothing against people who have art degrees. Mm -hmm. It's just, I really wanted to have a bit of a, a bit of a better structure underneath me. Now, at the time, I didn't know what to, what I was going to do. I just knew I love photography and that's all I wanted to do, but can I make money at it? I didn't know. Right. And so I still shot, I shot four by five film while I was there. I, I got to use the art department's four by five camera and in Detroit, I used to haul around a four by five camera box in downtown Detroit at night to take photos of the skyline. Good <laughs> God. Yeah. On rollerblades too. Cause that's real cool. Yes. You're such but a nobody, catch. I can't. Nobody would bother a Canadian, a female Canadian rollerblading around downtown Detroit in the early 2000s. People were like, what? With a photo box okay. and a giant tripod. No, who would have bothered yeah. you at all? We're not going to rob her. That seems super weird. Um, and I lived on Cass Corridor. I live like the university, Wayne State University is right in downtown Detroit. So I was like right in the thick of it. Actually, I just recently went back. I was on a photo shoot in Michigan. So I took a couple extra days to see friends. And uh, I went back to, to school to go watch a football game. And it was really funny because where I used to run with like keys between my knuckles and between like buildings, there's like a dog park and a cafe now. <laughs> <laughs> like what there's like scooters on each block that you can rent like you oh, know the rentable yeah. you know i was like 
where I'm 20 years too late or too early. I yeah. should have been here 20 years earlier. Yeah. I was waiting so, to yeah. get mugged at any point. No, not anymore. Oh my gosh. It was a special place in my heart is Detroit, but, um, I don't, you know, I go, I go back when I have photo shoots there basically. So right. uh, when I did my research and I saw that you did have a business degree, I thought, wow. Okay. If she didn't have a plan in art, at least she had a good life plan because with that degree it was going to set you up for success because whatever you got into at least you had the foundation of business yeah and now that, that's the way I looked at it is I really wasn't sure I started off as a communication actually I wanted to be a photojournalist coming out of high school that's the only thing that I had in my brain but I wanted to play hockey more and so I was like well maybe I could be a photojournalist but what happened was I got offered a full scholarship and it was kind of like, well, that school doesn't actually have your program. So again, if you're a young adult and you're actually thinking about doing your education and it's not being paid for by the government, (laughs) (laughs) um, maybe just rethink and take your time to figure out what you want to major in. So you're not in financial debt at the end. Right. But I was getting a free education and I was kind of like, um, they don't have a photojournalistic program at the school, but I could be a communications major. And I didn't really know what that entailed because no one really, when you go to university, they don't really tell you of all the different jobs there could be out there. Sure. You know, it's so standardized in, um, in that regard. So um, when I went to university, I started taking communication courses and then somehow a lot of the time, I hate to tell you this, but when you're on a team with a lot of other people, you kind of want to be in their classes too, or maybe you want to have spare blocks the same time, or, you know, you want to be able to, and then you have to work your, your class schedule around practice as well. That's the main component. So how it all fell into place is I had a teammate who was like, you know, you've taken enough classes now to just be a bit, a marketing advertising major. And I was like, Ooh, that sounds creative. Maybe I could do that. That would sound way more fun than communications where I had to give like public speaking, which I, I hated at the time. Um, and so I started taking marketing aver- advertising courses, which there were some uh, creative courses, but it's nothing like it is today. I, I, I would perceive we didn't have social media. We didn't have all these different forms of creative content that needed to be made. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was all newsprint, magazine print, and commercial TV spots. Right. And now, and, and MySpace was around, but I don't remember what ads were on MySpace <laughs> or AOL Messenger. So, um, it, you know, so I ended up shifting my major. And at, and also when you're in, in um, NCAA, they have course requirements or requirements for players to um, take a certain amount. You have to like be at a certain amount each year to continually continue to qualify. Yeah. I don't know how it is now with now players being able to make money off their likeness. Oh, it's totally changed. Oh, that's a whole other conversation I can have with you. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I had an argument with somebody about it the other day and I'm like, it's supposed to be about the education, but well, who am I to say anything? And yeah. they're like, you're just bitter. I'm like, I'm not, I didn't ever think I was going to be a millionaire of female hockey. Let's be honest with you. <laughs> so anyways, um, long story short there for you. Um, um, you had originally asked why I held on to these. Um, I, I, I took film cameras with me to college. And I got to then, because that's all there was, and I was shooting with them there. And so I had um, my original one, and I started looking into medium format uh, through my high school teacher, and I bought my Mamiya 645, 
out of a camera shop in Seattle. They shipped it to me and I had this 645 and I was super excited about it. And it actually, um, I have a Hasselblad 500 CM and it's a beautiful camera. It's got great lenses, but that Mamiya 645 is like a tank. It is. And, and it really is quick to load, easy to use. Um, I actually took the optical viewfinder off that had the light meter in it and mm-hmm. I've just bought a shade, like just the pop-up shade Yep. meter on my phone now so much faster. Um, and, uh, so, um, I started having friends, parents, like give me cameras cause they knew I liked to shoot film. And that was right as people were transitioning to digital. Right. So next thing you know, I have like a box full of cameras and I was like, okay, I don't know what to do with these. So I just started to display them in my bedroom, you know? <laughs> um, and then over time, um, the collection just grew and then I would I purchase some cameras to use. And then I, but the majority of the cameras I have behind me here, um, I have been gifted. Um, I have a beautiful Nikon F3 behind me. That's only been only shot like 10 rolls through it. My husband's godfather gave it to me. He's like, Hey, you like cameras. I've got a brand new Nikon F3 that I've never used. Do you want it? And I was like, yes. How can you say no to that? And oh, when, yeah, for me, a lot of photography for me isn't just about capturing images, but it's the tactile mechanical feeling I get behind using cameras. And I think that's part of this dyslexic brain of mine where I need to be doing something and I need to feel it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. yes. And it was also present. It was all like, I could, I knew what I was doing. I could click the buttons and feel everything. And I knew, okay, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I'm creating images. And so that is why I keep them around because I'll throw film in them. I'll use them. Or sometimes I just walk up to one and I'll click the shutter and I'm like, that's like butter on bread. That is just beautiful. If I could make like my phone just be like a beautiful, like six, four or five or a Hasselblad shutter. Oh, it's beautiful. So, um, I don't develop anymore really in my studio. I do have a black bag in here. I have a, a studio here in Montana. Um, and uh, I actually just sent seven rolls of film. I decided over Christmas I would just shoot film. I sent seven rolls of film to the dark room. Um, it's in California, actually, online company. And I sent it there. And within a week, I already had scans back. Wow. Which is insane. And they're beautiful scans. They did a really good job. And then four days later, um, they sent me my negatives back. They did an incredible job. So I'm going to keep using that service. It was like $12 per roll. And um, and I know a roll is like $12. It's like $24 per a roll. But um, I thought, okay, actually, I like this. I like the convenience of this. And I think this is going to make me want to shoot my film cameras even more because I own a like a M3 I have a, a Hasselblad X-Pan panoramic beautiful camera they're oh, so hard to find right so now hard to find. and I bought mine seven years ago for like a quarter of the price and I was looking at prices the other day I'm like oh my gosh this is actually worth a lot of money now you know when you were buying um, that X-Pan they were probably like this sucker I can't believe she's buying this thing yeah, an electronic camera, you know, that's already 20 something years old. And so right. if you are actually, I actually just gave away a film camera the other day. I gave one also to my nephew this summer because I have a bunch of Pentax like K1000s, which are like 
bomb proof. And Pentax just announced they might make a film camera, which is so cool that they want to revive a film camera. There's a whole video they just put out saying that there is this really nostalgic group or basically, I hate to say it, but I, or I like to say it is thank you, hipsters, hipsters. Thank you. You're keeping my film alive and I appreciate that. So keep going, keep being hip and you wanting to use film cameras and wanting to be different because, um, I think that the resurgence of film and the resurgence of companies making film is going to kind of just keep that alive. But I think you need to take digital and you put it on the right side and you take film and you put it on the left side and don't even bother to connect them together. Just enjoy both formats the way they are. And they're very different. And that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good way to look at it because to have them crossing is, is very difficult and to try to, you know, you can have maybe an old FM3 like your F3 like you got and shoot film. You can probably maybe use that lens. It's going to be straight manual if you put it on a brand new, you know, D5, but you're going to have to manually focus it and everything. But if you keep them yeah. separate, you're going to be just great. Yeah, and I, I have adapters. I've thrown some of my nice lenses or my Leica glass on some stuff. But honestly, I, it's as, for as, Leica. Yeah. yeah, and as interesting as it is on my digital, I'd just rather use it on the beautiful piece of art that they created. I mean, right. when you click that Leica shutter, oh my goodness. I mean, no, that what M3 a gorgeous is, camera. Yeah, that M3 is Yeah, and, I, I, and that M3 belonged to my best friend's uh, father, and they were clearing out his estate, and they kept asking me, can you come and do an appraisal on some cameras for us? So he had a bunch of film cameras. And I was like, sure, but none of them say like L in front of it or or like a V for Voigtlander or anything. And I, they kind of made it sound like it was like a bunch of Kodaks. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll go. So I kind of like kept putting it off. And finally I went up there and I walk around the corner and I walk into the room and she has it all laid out. And I like, I stopped and I just turned around and I walked out of the room. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> she had an M3 that he purchased in Paris in 19... 19- 64 I think it was with all the paperwork all the receipts three different lenses and then like every intricate little Leica created cool filter and everything um and um she had uh, some beautiful four by five um graph gra- the graphlex graphlex gra- yeah. graph I can't remember um cameras um there was a bunch of stuff and I just I was like Oh my, there's, you've had a Leica this whole time, uh, an M3. And if you're not like a dorky camera geek, like, uh, you know, some of us here, um, just so you know, a Leica M3, and this isn't for you, but for your listeners, I mean, it's the original camera in the M series and they started at three. So I'm not sure why they started at three, but they made the best one first. (laughs) It's like WD-40. It's kind of, they got, they just used it. They made the best one first. What was the cost of it? Does it say on the receipt? Do you know? So, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, I have it in my folder. Ballpark. I can't really. I think it was like 300 something dollars in the 60s or something right. out Which of Paris. And it was in money. a lot of money. And um, then the three lenses, he had it circled. And actually, um, at the top here, I have a brochure. I have a bunch of brochures that he had. And he had it all circled. And so it was. Um, the actual old Leica brochure. And, and so I, I had always said to somebody that the one camera I wanted was a Leica because I really wanted to just use that perfect piece of machinery. It's like a Ferrari. It just purrs, right? Oh. And, but I, I, you can go online, you can buy them. But I said to someone years and years ago, I'm like, 
I have a feeling I'm going to find one one day, whether it's in a thrift store or whether it's in a random antique store or someone's basement. Well, it turns out I found one. And so I just said to them, um, it was a, they were doing um, a state appraisal. So either they had to purchase it individually as um, siblings of the estate or it would sell with the estate. And so I went through the M3 and the prices at the time and the lenses and everything. And I couldn't, um, it's, it looked like everything worked on it, but I wasn't totally sure, right, but uh, there wasn't any separation in the, um, in the, um, um, in the diopter or whatever. Um, okay. the, yeah, Blades there wasn't any separation. Right. Yeah. Shutter everything seemed, good. everything looked good. Um, and so I gave them an offer and I just said, if you sell this for the, you know, with the estate, I mean, if someone keeps it, that's great. But if you sell it, I would love to be the first one at least to put an offer in on it. And just so you know, I will use it and it will be loved and used. Um, and so they ended, eventually took me up on it. And um, I have their father's name. He had one of those old school um, label guns that was like, oh, you can the, feel it. Yeah, you put it into the plastic. Yeah. And so his he has that on the bottom of the camera. So I left it on the bottom of the camera. So his name's on the camera. Um, I took the original light meter off because it actually scratched the M3 pretty good. It can scratch. It was known for scratching the top of the Leica brass, which is crazy. Um, and then um, I sent it in to this the one guy now. Like there's this main guy in, I think it's Pennsylvania, You who services them. And I was noticing, I shot a couple of rolls off. I developed them myself and I was noticing that there was shutter speeds that were just going black. So what I didn't know at the time, it was the shutter was sticky, like it was sticking. It was sticking yeah. And so I, I called this guy up and it was like, okay, I'm shipping it to his personal address. This seems so weird, but like he came highly recommended by like all the local camera stores I called. And so I sent it to him and um, with a couple of the lenses and um, there was a little bit of haze in one. So we cleaned that out. And then he got the shutter, he calibrated it, and he actually could look it up through the serial number that it was last serviced in New York at B&H Photo in 19-whatever. Like, it was really cool oh, being Jessica, able to get that, that information. Awesome history. And it's just a beautiful camera. So I have it actually, I usually keep it in my safe um, habit. And Montana is a really good place to actually have old cameras because we have such low humidity here. So it's actually like a prime place to collect vintage cameras because a lot of cameras can get fungus or haze. And over time, some of my Vancouver cameras in the, um, in the prisms, which you can't replace on the majority of them unless you have like an F3 um, have this fungus growing in them. There's a, there's a bunch of them down here and I can't do anything about it. So, um, so yeah, this, this little M3, um, it's, it's beautiful and I love, I'm loving on it and I've been photographing now for four years with it or so. And, um, and it's great. It comes with three lenses. Like the M3 could only take three lenses, um, that would actually show you in the viewfinder. So, um, so it's, it's pretty cool. And yeah, it's my dream camera. And so I, I'm not taking to, to on my next trip with me though. I just, if I'm going to go to like a really humid place, I'm not going to take no. that camera with me. So no, I have to head Mamiya. to Florida on my next shoot. Yeah. So I'm taking this Mamiya that's a tank and, um, 
so yeah, that's, I, I still have them. I love them. And I have been finding, I've been trying to, if someone's showing like big interest in wanting to learn film or shoot film, um, my goal is to kind of like, there's some cameras I have that have been given to me that are not one of a kind that are just really good starter film cameras. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to actually gift more away to people because um, I'll always run into them. I, I find, you know, those Pentax K1000s, you find them everywhere oh. and they're just a really good camera, like just a beast. Yeah. Um, and so, and my sister's always on the lookout for like uh, cameras that, you know, garage sales and she'll call me with a photo. Do you want this? And I'll be like 10 bucks. I'm like, grab it. And I'll, I'll, I'll check it out and, and maybe be able to give it to somebody. So um, there's certain cameras that I won't give away. And then if I, if someone shows enthusiasm, then I'll, I want them to be excited about it. That's so. exactly what you want to do. You don't want to give them all away. So you don't want to give them all away. <laughs> <laughs> so you clearly give, hoarding issue here. Yeah, well, It's a good looking hoarding issue. So it's all right. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. You get done with college. You get done with hockey your NHL career is not going to take off at that moment. What is your plans? What are you thinking? Well, so as a female in athletics, I hate to say this, but you're not, your chances are you're not going to be a millionaire. So I I hate to tell you that it sucks, but there isn't necessarily a market to make a lot of money out of it. So um, actually what had happened is my senior year, um, I was playing and I was just in the dark room all the time and taking photos. And I was uh, on, on the streets on my rollerblades, um, taking <laughs> photos at night, black and white, four by five prints of downtown Detroit and the Fox Theater and some of these iconic places. And um, uh, coaches and, and the athletic director actually asked if they could buy prints off of me. And at the time I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. That sounds pretty cool and make some money. So I, um, the athletic director kind of spearheaded it. He came up to me and he was like, I really want that. I want it framed. I want it matted and I want it big. So I blew it up as big as I could on a larger, right? It's of downtown Detroit city skyline actually shot in Windsor, Ontario back Back. over. Okay. Over at the skyline, black and white reflection off the river. Perfectly. It's a beautiful black and white image. Um, it definitely not the first person to take it, but probably the first person to haul a damn four by five camera over there to do it. Cause we go to Windsor all the time. And so, um, on I printed it as big as I could Don't on roller. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Go through the tunnel and my rollerblades. Um, and so, uh, he bought one and uh, he told me to tell him the price and buy the frame and mat it and do all of that. And so I did all of it and I charged him a price, which was probably like terribly underpricing myself probably. But um, it was my first time being like, Oh, I, I can sell photos. Maybe I could do this. This is cool. This is the only thing I truly love to do outside of hockey. And when you focus your, you know, your majority of your teenage years or your high school life or your middle school on a sport, and then suddenly you wake up one day and you're like, oh my goodness, I need to have a better plan here. Um, it it kind of hits you. And I was like, oh my gosh, I better... I need to figure this out. What do I want to do? I don't know. I was like throwing around the idea of grad school. NCAA will like cover some of that if you want to stay, but I couldn't stay in the U S right. Like your government educated me, but I I couldn't stay. There was no 
there's no way for me to stay. So it's like right. either I go home or I stay in education and I could keep doing school. Um, and so I started selling these prints and different prints. And then um, my uh, assistant coach um, of the hockey team, she was, she's an awesome lady. And she asked me if I'd be interested in taking some photos for our little hockey brochure that the department puts out every year. So I lined it up and I shot us on the four by on the uh, six, four, five Mamiya, a black and white shot of all the girls on the hockey team and some shots of iconic. Like they took, they used the shots of like the, um, um, the Fox theater and the lions and like all of that. And so, um, they published it in the little book and I was like, Oh, this is cool. And I love like, a dream of mine would be to have a photo in a newspaper. That's kind of what I was always like thinking. I'm like, this would be cool. And so someone then ended up hooking me up with the, um, the local paper and said, Hey, if you want to just go and see what they're doing, they, you can um, basically like shadow them a couple of times. And I, at the time still just had, um, my film camera. And so one of the guys at the the local paper was like, why don't you come out to the softball game and you can try my equipment and just see how it is. So I got to hold his like digital camera at the time with a big lens and take a photo of the picture. And then he published it in the local, the university paper. And I was like, this is cool. I like this feeling. And so I'm like struggling to figure out what I'm going to do. I'm now selling prints pretty regularly to students even and such um, framed prints of Detroit. And so of Detroit um, of all places, like of not- Detroit. Yeah. Of Detroit. I mean, Hey, you don't knock Detroit till you've been there. It's, it's got some pretty cool architecture. I've, I've been there, so but it was it's a not hotbed. like people say the architectural place of the world. Detroit. Yeah, it was a, it was a, well, I mean, there's, it, it's got this crazy infusion of like old art mixed with destruction. And that's how I would classify it. It's like this, it's like what was beautiful mansions mixed with decay. Yeah. So strange. Um, but my, my mom at the time was, she was over me being away. She was like, okay. You have been gone for four years. We'd love you to come home. And, and do you really want to do your master's in business? Like, is this something you really want to do? And I was like, I don't know. Like, what am I going to do? I don't know. So she ended up finding a photography program for me based in Vancouver. And she was like, they take 20 students a year. It's a intensive program. It's a two year, um, uh, uh, program that basically breaks it down from trying to train you to be a lab tech all the way to being a professional photographer. And so I apply, I had actually in 2005 asked my parents for a loan while I was in the summer. So I graduated, I did every summer too to finish in my four years. So technically I graduated at the end of the summer of 2005. And so beginning of summer hockey's now done. Now I'm just trying to get through school while NCAA will still pay for it. And I just need to graduate uh, before the fall starts or else they're not going to cover it. I need to get it done. So I asked my parents if I can have a loan from them. And the only place legally you could work in the United States at the time was on campus. So I was working on campus at, in the athletic department coaching or um, refing games like uh, baseball. And then you sit at the desk and you answer phones in the athletic office and stuff. Right. Um, so as a Canadian, that's the only place I could technically work um, on campus. Um, and so anyways, they, uh, 
my my mom found me this program and I I I managed to get a loan to buy a Nikon D200 um and knew nothing about lens selections really knew nothing about digital cameras but for $2000 I got a my, they gave me a $2000 loan I know <laughs> sure I think I've repaid that I don't know actually <laughs> um and my mom um, said, okay, this is what you want to do. Then let's get you a digital camera. And soon as I got a digital camera in my hands, things actually accelerated and changed right away. What lens did you get with the D200? My God, I got to think about that. A zoom? Something I bet like if I go into those photos, I'd figure it out. But man. Yeah, you could pull what? metadata. But like what, yeah. 28 to 70, 7200? Well, it would, no, it wouldn't have been anything super expensive at the time because I wouldn't have had the funds for it, but it was so probably like some, a kit lens. Yeah. It's probably like an 18 to 35 right, or 55 okay. to 200 or whatever a kit lens would be. I can't remember 18 to specifically. 55 because that's a crop sensor DX. Crop so, yeah. sensor. And, but, the, but everything changed then in terms of your acceleration in learning oh. just changed i i already had my basis behind me and a good foundation of photography i I really feel that film i don't think it needs to be a struggle that's the thing like i don't think that anything that people do today necessarily need to be a struggle but i think you need to put experience and time into it so it doesn't need to necessarily be this like terrible i slug through the dirt to get there but it's made me um i i don't when i get young kids reaching out to me i don't you know want to be the way that all the photographers were to me back then where they're like, don't come in the industry and they're all hiding on their little Easter egg of their, they don't want to share anything. Nobody wants to talk about it and they're all mean. And it's also like a old boys club of dudes who don't want to like give me any information. Right. So I don't mean to, I'm not ragging on no, guys but it was here, very but the, true. The, that's the way it was in the, in the industry. And so, um, you know, once I got this digital camera, things just clicked so much faster. And I was producing work like that camera never left my hands. I was shooting, shooting, shooting. And guess what? I could see results right there. Right. That changed everything. So I already was shooting, shooting, shooting with my film cameras, but it would then maybe take me a month to process something. And then I don't know, I was never the photographer that like took immaculate notes and be like, Oh yeah, I shot that. at <laughs> Like, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what's on these five rolls of film. Um, I'm not an organized person in that regard. So, but the, the digital aspect and there was, I had no training in any kind of post software, anything, but, um, it just, it really allowed me to progress quickly. So suddenly I had a digital portfolio that I could then send to the school and I sent them, you know, 20 images and I applied and I already had a degree. I was finishing my business degree and that was huge for them. And they only take 20 students a year. And so he was like, yeah, he was like, okay, you're in. So I packed up everything in Michigan and I put all of my boxes of things, all the cameras I was collecting out there from uh, people's parents. I put like seven, eight boxes on a Greyhound bus and shipped it back to Vancouver. Cause that's how we used to ship. It was on Greyhound bus out of Windsor, Ontario. Whoa. I mean, I shipped back my microwave. I don't know what the heck I was doing. It must I mean, have been honestly, the best my- microwave ever. No, it was so ridiculous. I ship. I think I shipped back like a lot of the cooking stuff. Like, why didn't I sell all that? I don't know what I was thinking. So, um, 
yeah, I got home. Like I literally got home the last couple of weeks of August and then September swung right back into school. And I was already in school mode. So for me, it wasn't anything different, but I was now in school with like young kids who are fresh out of high school and were stressing out about everything. And I'm like, why? Like, oh, how do you have so much time on your hands? And I'm like, well, I have a degree, so I'm not having to take any business photography courses, which they were actually making the kids do that were mostly just business courses on invoicing and stuff. Um, And so I got to skip a lot of classes um, that they took my credits for. That's good. uh, yeah. And I, I really loved the program. Um, I didn't really excel, uh, educationally wise. I was never care. I never cared about my grades at that point. I was like, Oh, just as long as I get my assignments in, I just wanted to shoot and absorb the shooting aspect of it. And there was a lot of training and a lot of learning and a lot of things that maybe sucked the art out of you. So you could learn the standards of it. Mm-hmm. Um, foundation. But I owe a lot to that the foundation, the foundation, foundation. I owe, I owe a lot to that program. I'm grateful for it. I, I, um, if I can help out as alumni, I, you know, will critique work and stuff. I can never really be a practicum, uh, teacher, unfortunately for students, cause I am far away, but, um, anytime a student wants to connect, I'm always excited to chat with them. I've gone and given a lecture there before. And, um, now they, they was, they were still doing film when I got there. You did one year film, one year digital. Now it's all digital and they get to play with film. They get to play with film. (laughs) So we'll break out a box of film for you today. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Was, um, was, were you just absorbing everything like a sponge? Because you're obviously a little more mature. You're not 18, right? So you got some life underneath you. You're obviously being a, a division one athlete gives you discipline. A lot of people don't realize that when you are an athlete, it's time management, it's discipline. People tell you where to go and where to be and you have to perform. So that's another aspect you had. When you come to this at this point in your life, were you just taking it all in and it was just unfiltered information? Um, a little yes and a little no. I, I think at that point I was really tired of post-secondary education, really. I mean, I had done one year at home while after I'd been injured. I actually took some college courses. Then I did four straight years. So now I'm on five years. And then, and then suddenly I have two years more ahead of me. And I was like, man, I just kind of want to be in the world. I want to be living. I want to be an adult. Like I'm an adult and I'm hanging out with 18-year-olds here. And so that I was absorbing. kind of rough too. Yeah, it was a bit strange. And I think the thing was, is they were all frantic. Oh my God. I just remember they were all so frantic before each test running around, running around. And I was like, okay. I mean, for me, I'm grateful that I did the course after, uh, after a degree because I could, so I, I guess the way I would say it is I, at this point knew I wanted to be a professional photographer. Okay. I'm, I'm on track for that. This is what I love to do. I was one of the only students who had a digital camera now at this point. So I was shooting a lot. They hadn't bought them yet because they were so expensive. So 2006 is when I started this program and, and kids were able to borrow them from the studio, like from the, from the department, you could borrow a uh, backing to a hot, like Hasselblad and, and a digital backing, or they had a couple DSLRs and I don't remember what they were, but I was one of the first ones who had now had actually purchased some lenses, figuring out what I like and trying different things. And so I think part of the, 
part of my challenge was I was really only absorbing what I was keyed into. Okay. So I'm like, I don't like studio shooting. I don't like lighting. I don't like being stuck to the confines of a camera on a tripod. So did I do my best when I had to go shoot still art of fruit? No. <laughs> no. Did I show up and get it done? Yes. Did I get a grade for it and finish it and complete my check mark? Absolutely. Did I then sink my teeth into all that other stuff? Yes. So anytime I could be outside, if I, when they would give us a, a no limitations on a project and they said, your interpretation of this, go shoot it. I would just, I, I would, was already out there shooting it. And that's the thing. I already had my camera in my hand and I was shooting, shooting, shooting. And these kids were just struggling to like figure out math class. And oh, I was like, goodness. been there. Luckily didn't have to take any more math because I managed to finish math in university like somehow. Um, but anyways, I think I really absorbed at the time. In hindsight, I wish I had been a little bit more focused on, okay, I'd like to actually learn more about uh, off-camera flash and lighting and I own flashes and lighting but I actually don't need to use any of it in my particular field that I work in or if I do it's a very specific time and I don't go too crazy overboard I find like keeping it simple is the best for me for lighting because I'm not one of those people who can visualize lighting which there's some photographers out there who will look at it and they're like okay I want this light and I'm, I'm I want a key light here and I, I want a hair light and let's get this background light and like that's great, but I never saw it. I could see lighting when it was happening in front of my eyes and be like, oh, okay, actually I need that subject here. So I think I absorbed when I needed to absorb to be successful in the way that I wanted to be successful. And what the biggest thing I got out of that program is in your final year, you get to um, have a practicum with two photographers and there's a bunch of photographers and you can reach out to whoever you want. And if they'll take you, they'll be your practicum teacher. Interesting. Well, I managed to get a, yeah. And, and so real on the scene experience. So I got one with this one guy who just made me fetch him coffee. And again, don't think you need to struggle to make it in the industry, but that's how he felt. You needed to, you know, you needed to do all the things he had to do before he'd even let you look at what he's shooting. You know, I just, I just don't buy that. I just don't see how do you learn from fetching someone coffee? And if I, and if I'm a barista at a coffee shop, then, you know, I'll get, get you coffee. <laughs> just wasn't a good learning environment for me. And, you know, I'm already a, slightly, I'm a hockey player. I already have an attitude. Um, I'm going to talk back to you if I, if I need to. I'm going to check your ass in the oh, boards. I'm, just, I'm not great with authority. If you start yelling in my face, it takes me right back to hockey and I'm just, I'm, I'm not good at it. And I, I will jersey over his head and give him yeah. a good old whooping. Yeah. I'll start. I'll just be like, I don't have fucking time for this. So, um, my next practicum, I reached out to the head photographer, of the Vancouver Canucks and his name's Jeff Finnick. And, um, definitely was a mentor of mine. Um, he took me on actually, Jeff he, took you on. he, he emailed me and said, why don't you come out and we can try it out for one, one game, one Canucks game. I, I knew that I really loved the journalistic side. And my idea was like, maybe I could be a, a newspaper photographer, but again, like dying on the vine newspapers. Um, I didn't know anything about the industry. Uh, and also didn't know of the club of guys that shot in that industry and also the lack of money in that industry at times too. There's Hockey. very few. 
very few slots, very few slots. And so um, he called me out and I, um, I, I went out to the game, which was awesome. I got to go to NHL game. And I, I sat in the room and I quietly watched him and did what he asked. Can you run a card here? Could you go check on that camera to make sure it's turned on? And then he's after that game, I didn't shoot anything. It was just, he wanted to see, I guess who I was and everything. And so the, the, I get an email from him. He's like, why don't you um, come back next week for, you know, Thursday's game. Okay. And then after a few, I think it was finally, he's like, you can bring your camera and you can shoot when I don't need you. And I said, okay, cool. So it was basically, um, I did that for an entire season uh, being able to, I'd run to get his card. So I'd, I'd get to shoot at the boards. I'd have to run up out of the arena. Like you go down into the basement area, back around all the way to like the benches or the, the penalty box or no, sorry, not the penalty box. Like there's the, um, the benches and then the, the, where some of the ESPN guys now stand to commentate. Cause I think right. it's like so much better to commentate from there. Part of the action. <laughs> they did, that, that was a whole thing. Cause they then started taking up photographers spots because uh-huh. they just really needed to be there. So um, I would then run a, all the way back. A remote camera. Sorry. Yeah. He would have um, a remote in one of the nets. Okay. He'd have a remote usually in a corner on a magic arm. Okay. And then he'd also have a remote set up sometimes shooting top down okay, from the, yeah. um, from overhead. Mm-hmm. And I would very rarely have to go up there to get the overhead camera unless it was like a epic, beautiful, incredible shot. Then it's like, okay, I need you to go up to get that. But I would, um, he trained me to grab his cards to upload into photo mechanic to caption and to send to Getty images to New York live. So you're now maybe, maybe 20 photos a game, maybe. And he would star the images on his, on his camera that he was shooting with of anything he got on here. And then he would say, Hey, uh, I could never get out the goalie cameras, right? Cause those, those would be in, in all game, but anything under the boards or the, the there's one at the very floor at, at um, at that arena too, that you could shoot through plexiglass on the floor. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, I think I fired it at the right time. He'd be shooting strobes too. Right. So, um, he, he was a, he's a phenomenal photographer. I believe he still is shooting for them. I haven't connected with him in a really long time. I believe he's still shooting for them. Um, you know, he would go on the team trips and shoot all of this stuff. Um, and, when you're shooting strobe in the NHL, I mean, he said he used to shoot Hasselblads uh, on strobe and that's how he used to shoot hockey. And yeah. I'm like, so you literally are just timing it perfectly. And so when he was shooting on strobe, I was shooting no strobe and I'm shooting and you don't realize actually how dark NHL arenas truly are, <laughs> even though they look bright, they look so bright. But if you put anything other than an F 2.8 lens on, it's like dark. Um, and so he, um, yeah, he, he entrusted or trusted me to edit his images. He showed me how exactly I needed to do it. And anytime I saw a number in a Jersey, there had to be a name and a caption. I, I'm the worst person to be a captioner too. Cause I can't spell. So that was a trial and error. Especially European names. Yeah. Yeah. Trial and error situation, but it wasn't just like I was saying names. I also had to like make up a comment about it. And it's right. like, and I think he took me on is because I was eager to listen. I also knew hockey really well. And that was the thing. He, I knew the game. And I didn't get like oogly girl-eyed around the NHL guys. 
they all respected me. I appreciated that. I got a photograph Wayne Gretzky when he came in um, as a coach. I got a photograph, um, you know, in Vancouver, people would know like Trevor Linden. Like mm-hmm. I got a photograph, some really big guys in the, uh, in the NHL. And it was the coolest thing. And was Pavel Bure she, was still with them at the time? No, he was retired at that point. I'm not that old. Pavel was, uh, he would have, um, gosh, when would he have left the Canucks? Probably in 98 or something okay. like that. Right. He, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it just, that, it, that is what I wanted, but it was weird because I then started shooting weddings, um, off of randomly. That. The reason why I started shooting weddings is because at the time of my age range, I had a lot of people in my life who were getting married. I'm now, what, 25, 26? People are getting married. And because you have friends that are getting married, and maybe I've never shot a wedding before, they're like, you're a photographer. Can you shoot our wedding? And I'm like, yeah, all right. (laughs) So I started shooting weddings, and that actually started to snowball. I shot weddings for seven years. Um, that would fill up my entire summer basically. And it was great money. I mean, I actually highly recommend if you're a starting photographer to shoot weddings. And the reason why I recommend it is because you get to be a portrait photographer, a landscape photographer, a food photographer, an editorial photographer. Uh, you get, you get to be all in one, in one day and you, you just get one chance at it and it makes you so much better. So you know, I, I was never like, it's, I would go back to shooting weddings one day because as soon as you say the word wedding, I can just add Zost to the end of the price. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of got tired of it and like shooting other things. And seven um, years is but a I long was, time. Seven. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And it was all out of Vancouver and I had a big client list. And then guess what happens is all those people of friends of friends start to get older and next thing you know you got to go to wedding shows and you got to like market yourself and I just didn't want to do that and that wasn't me um but I'd have the NHL guys ask me about the wedding industry because at the time I didn't know it that the papers were going downhill Mm um you know that the that the sports photography realm was just not what it was and so I started getting guys asking me about weddings. Oh, how's the wedding industry? You know, or I was shooting real estate too in Vancouver. I could do two, three, four um, apartments or homes a day for a realtor and, and then have their images to them by the evening for the MS or MLS, um, not professional soccer, but the, um, the listing site that they needed. Um, and you could just turn over those images really quickly. I never lit it. It was just all just like, just shooting natural light, getting it done and, and turning over so many homes. Um, so at this point I was now working as a photographer and getting paid jobs while finishing photography school. Learning what you did with the Canucks, did that help you understand editing and archiving? Absolutely. I would not be where I am today if I had not gotten that practicum from Jeff. And the main reason is, he, year two, he took me on again. I'm now not a student, but now I'm an assistant for him. And the, and the Canucks are now going to pay me an assistant fee to be his assistant. So for two years after that, he didn't take another student from the school. He kept me around to keep doing this and keep shooting. And then he suddenly managed to get me some money to get paid to shoot some of this stuff. And then next thing you know, he can't go shoot a soccer event. So Getty Images calls me and say, hey, you shoot with Jeff. Could you go shoot this soccer event? This is what we need. This is what we pay. And I was like, 
okay. Jeff called me one day and he's like, hey, you drive boats, right? And I said, yeah, you know, I was on the side still driving these eco tours and I used to work at this marina and I drive them. And he goes, um, the Canucks are going to be doing a fishing charity event up in Northern British Columbia for children's hospital. Are you at all interested in going up there to photograph a salmon derby? And I'm like, yes. And I said, hold on, where? And he goes, Haida Gwaii, formerly known as the Queen Charlotte Islands. It's now called Haida Gwaii after the Haida people, um, or has been re- been named again mm-hmm. um, after the Haida people. And it is Northern BC. You look at Alaska, basically, or Japan, and you fly there on a on a plane that takes you into a town called Masset, and from there you helicopter into a lodge in the middle of nowhere. And there's bald eagles, there's humpback whales, there's killer whales, there's insane rock formations. I mean, it is the, one of the, it's a place that I feel is good for your soul. It is an incredibly beautiful place. And so when he was like, do you want to go to Haida Gwaii? I was like, yes. What do I need to do? Well, you're not going to get paid for the shoot, but we'll fly you up there and you get, you know, you get to stay in the lodge and you get to have wine and champagne and fancy food. And I need you just to document the players on these boats fishing. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. That sounds cool. So I got uh, flown up to this lodge and it was in 2008. I flew up to this lodge and um, over 15 years later, I still have a relationship with the lodge, but the Vancouver Canucks sprung me into the fishing industry without me even knowing it at the time. So I, you know, I, I actually haven't been up to the lodge in the past three years, COVID and restrictions and everything, but I'm actually on their books to go up for a nine day trip to shoot as much stock for them as possible. So I shoot everything from their food to, um, you know, some of the, you know, the cheesy holdups, but also landscapes, they need drone stuff. They need underwater releases of salmon, um, details of new rooms they might've built, um, boats, new boats they have, um, just everything content just as much content as possible um so i just i owe that practicum and i didn't know it at the time but that would change the course of what i thought i could be as a photographer and launch me into this whole different industry wow i mean if you (laughs) if you take up the piano or pole vaulting you know you might not end up at where you were in Michigan, you might not end up taking photography, going to Canada and becoming who you are. It's weird how that playing hockey, becoming a photographer, understanding hockey, saying yes, because you've been on the water with dad puts you here today. And the craziest thing about it is, and I also link this in my brain as well is, um, that Canadian lodge ended up opening a lodge down in South America in Panama for Marlin fishing. They had a floating 150 foot ship and two sport boats. Well, one day they said, Hey, you could shoot Marlin fishing, right? I'm like, I don't even know what a Marlin is, but okay. So I was actually still work. I was still shooting for the Canucks as an assistant and they got into the playoffs and I found out that sports illustrated was coming into town and I wasn't going to have a seat anymore. There wasn't going to be a chair for me. So I would just be a card runner and editor. And at the time he had um, 
a buddy of his doing more captions because I was clearly not excelling at caption work. <laughs> it was not my thing. So I ended up getting a call from the fishing lodge and they said, we really want to send you to Panama. We want to send you south. And I said, okay. I said, well, the playoffs are happening. I'm committed. So I called the photographer of the Canucks and I laid it out to him and he said, you know what? It sounds like a really good opportunity. I can bring someone in to edit. That's not an issue, Jess. I really think like with losing your seat in the building during the whole playoffs, I'll be in the basement editing. And at that point, he's like, you should go. I think this would be a good opportunity for you. So I went to Panama and I started, I lived down there off and on. I went down for a few weeks at the first time. And then the next time I went down for two months. And um, the first time I went though, I went down and the ship was this big, beautiful yacht, 150 feet long. And um, we used to get a lot of boats pulling up to it and they'd come for dinner. They would call ahead and like come for dinner. And we were out in the middle of the jungle, like literally there's nothing around. We're like four hour boat ride from Panama city. We're in the middle of nowhere. And one day I get a, the manager of the boat says, Hey Jess, there's this guy coming to the boat with his clients. His name is Wade. He's Texan. And I think you should meet him. And I was like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't set me up on the high seas and a Texan. I'm from Canada. This is ridiculous. Um, anyways, so who is now my husband, I ended up meeting him down in Panama. So it just is like full circle for me really is true full circle. Everything from my hockey to the fishing, to living and growing up on the ocean, to having a job that is ocean-based, to then meeting Wade, my husband, um, in Panama, in Panama, where he's running a private marlin fishing operation. Like how random is that? And so love and Panama. I owe a lot. Yeah, I love in Panama. So, actually, uh, hope I get to go back. I haven't been back there in in a while. We clo- he closed the operation back in I think it was 2015 now, um, and and sold off the boats and moved you know moved on from that. But um, well, he's a lucky it, man. It just, yes, yeah, best catch, right? Damn. Best catch. But but it just is interesting how by saying yes to certain opportunities, I really do think that it it allowed me to get to where I am now and. Um, and putting in time and experience, I, I, I wholeheartedly, believe, wholeheartedly believe that if you put in your time and you put in experience and it doesn't have to be this grueling, terrible sledging or sledging through the mud kind right. of time. And it if you just put be. in your time and you're open to opportunities, you can then eventually find the path you're supposed to be on. And I, I, I believe that in the photography industry because it's hard to make a living as a professional photographer. So you have to say yes a lot. And when you first start off, you have to say yes a lot and don't get paid a lot. So my hope is that maybe some of the younger people don't have to go through that part of it. Because I believe you you deserve to be paid for things. Right. Now, (laughs) with your business sense, right, you've got that under your belt. Are you looking at stuff saying, wait a minute. If I keep taking these jobs, at the end of the year, I'm not going to make any money. I'm not even going to have enough to pay myself. I'm just breaking even. I mean, was your business cap and your creative cap colliding at times? Oh, always. I feel like even today, sometimes they collide where it's like, you know what your value is, you know what you're worth. And then you have someone reach out to you and you're like, in like for half a second, my brain will be like, well, that sounds cool. And I'm like, wait a minute, no adulting here. 
nope, sorry guys, sorry. These are my rates and this is what everybody else in the industry pays me. So no, I'm not going to get, you know, the way I look at it, I travel so much. I do about 84 flights a year or more than that. I almost managed to make it to the top tier of Delta this year or last year. And I was so excited. I was so close. I was $4,000 away from it. I was like- $4,000 right or miles? There. So dollars, because I either do miles, which I was- very close in miles, but they also do it in money. So the amount of money spent traveling, that helps you get there. So all the companies are paying for my travel fees, but I'm booking them. And because right. I'm booking it, I was only $4,000 off, which is like one European round trip, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to just get yeah, on a plane no. to do it. But um, as I've gotten older and as I have more finite time or less finite time or finite time, I guess is the only way to say it with my father and my parents, you know, and, um, and then time with my husband and, and dogs. Um, I don't really want to get on an airplane unless it's financially worth it for me anymore. Oh, absolutely. So I just, I just won't, it's too much travel to make it sound, I mean, in all honesty, a lot of the time when you tell people you're a photographer, they're like, ooh. And I'm like, it sounds a lot sexier than it is. It's really not. It's a lot of hotels, a lot of airports. And then, yeah, I love my job and I love to do what I do. But like a lot of people are like, oh, are you going to tack on extra days and like go fishing? And I'm like, why would I go fishing? I just shot four days of fishing. I want to go home. I want to yeah, go home. And that's the thing <laughs> people also say because they don't realize it. Oh, you've, you've been fishing for four days. I have not thrown one rod in the water. I've watched no. people fish for four days. I've captured images for clients. Oh, and now, by the way, I've got to go back, edit. I don't know if you have to do post-production work. You got yeah, to go through yeah. things. You got to put it together, curate a library, put it on photo shelter, or send out a hard drive. Like your work's not done the day they get no. out of the water. no. I have a couple more weeks left of work. Like I'd just like to go home and do the th other things I love to do. And if I'm going to go fishing, I'm going to go fly fishing up my back door here in Montana. Yeah. I live one in, I live in one of the best fly fishing States in the United States. So as much as I would enjoy to go pick up a rod and throw it around, like I'm not passionate about that. Honestly, like I do love to fly fish here. And if, if I have time and friends are headed out on the river, I I'd love to go out on the river for a day, but it's not my main passion in life. My main passion is photography and I love to ride my bike. <laughs> I'm a bicycle rider. Um, I love to ride my bike and you just spend time. I, I feel like the more time I spend away, the more of a homebody I've become. Isn't that funny? And, I'm the same way too. Yeah. I don't know what that is. Like I've got way too, I, I hate when I have to check on my Marriott and do something. I look how many lifetime days I've got and I'm like, Oh God, that's like seven years I've lived in a hotel room. Like I do sleep really well in hotel rooms though. I have to say between, between just like cohabitating and like having dogs and I don't find I sleep great at home and I sleep really well in hotel rooms, but yeah, I mean, it's all part of it. But, um, over the last couple of years, one of the main companies I work for, one of the conversations I had with them, which this doesn't happen often. And it was a really remarkable conversation to have was, what can we do to make your life a little bit better? So the amount of work we want you to do is more successful. And I said, can we try to group together photo shoots? I know this isn't going to work all the time, but if I'm already on the road and I'm on the East coast, can we like try to do some back-to-back -back shoots so then I can be home for longer periods of time? And so it doesn't work all the time, but you know, this, I'm going on a 10 day 
stint where we have three shoots in the same area in Florida with three, you know, the two of them are with two different kind of anglers and the other ones with a different company. So that kind of just, I managed to fit it all in there, but it's that kind of thing, like having conversations with people where it's like also standing up for yourself in this industry as a photographer. I'm not necessarily talking about the fishing industry, but like as a photographer, I think so much we get pushed around kind of because Mm -hmm. we're, I think imagery and the um, imagery is worth these days in general public size due to social media and the ease and use of everybody getting images. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the it's devalued so much in some circumstances. So if you work for the right people, I think that if you can vocalize what you're needing, it is a little easier to hopefully plan it if you're working with the right people. And so the company I'm shooting for mostly full-time um, I would say is my, it's my main full-time client. Um, that was one of the conversations we had last year and we actually tried to stick to it. We managed to get like three or four months in a row where we did 12 day shoots. And I said, I don't want to be gone longer for than 14 days. I don't, I can't do that. I can't be gone for two, like more than two weeks. Cause that's a lot. And, and, and we had a situation come up where they wanted me to be gone for 20 something days. And I just, I called it and I said, wasn't part of our talk. I can't physically do that. I am that, tired. Yeah. That's the other thing too, right? You, you, they also have to understand you're performing at a peak level mentally and physically and mentally like you're bleeding out every creative juice out of your mind day in and day out, especially what you're doing. If you're dealing with salt water and weather and early morning and nobody wants to shoot at noons and so you're up at dawn, you're out at evening. It could be very taxing. It's very taxing. It's also very physically taxing, um, you know, um, holding cameras in hot environments or over salt water and you're, it's just you, right? And so, you're dragging that little taxi around behind you. Yeah, yeah no. I actually, so I just did a shoot in Mexico and I actually brought Bertha with me, my little boat Bertha. Um, and I did not take, I didn't end up using her for the shoot. I had uh, the mate on the boat, this young kid, he actually carried my underwater housing for me the whole time walking behind me on the flats. And I was like, you're strong. You'll be good. You'll be there good. You go, young lad. I was a nice kid because like I, I have a harness system. So I have two cameras on me, but if we have a fish and I go to like bend down, I don't want to, I have leashes on the cameras in case they fall off or so they don't go in the water but it's just so much more productive i can be like here hold this one camera and i'll grab the underwater housing and then i can just be really focused on what i'm doing but you know each shoot is different so now i find myself and the last five years i now classify myself as a commercial photographer in the sports fishing industry so i shoot products so i shoot Rods, reels, baits, sunglasses, clothing, boat, engines, parts. Um, And I shoot it all on location. So I'm not a studio photographer. I am on location with the anglers on their boat all day watching them, waiting for that moment, shooting products in their hands and usage and trying to make it look all really cool and creative all at the same time. So it's a very niche thing that I'm doing and I'm very aware of it. And I don't necessarily plan to be 60 years, 60 years old and jumping around boat to boat, but I will always be a photographer. So one day when I make that choice to pivot, I will pivot again and maybe I'll pivot back into weddings. Maybe I'll want to just be in a studio. Maybe I'll actually start a magazine or something. If I could just, if I could be a millionaire and just shoot for magazines for the rest of my life and just shoot editorial content of really cool people, I would do that. 
but you know, financially, that's not a great decision. Right. <laughs> so don't, don't do that if, if you, you know, if you need to pay bills. Um, so I think that's the thing with photography is people really young people, especially tend to focus on just what they want to do and not the process behind needing to get there. Mm-hmm. And it is really cool to say you want to be an outdoor photographer. Or you want to work in the outdoor industry. So I get so many emails. How do I work with brands? And I'm like, that was never my focus. My focus was to shoot and get paid for it. So what did I have to do to get there? And how did I meet people along the way and shake hands with people that led me there? And, you know, I think that's the thing is everything I'm doing. I, um, I had a magazine, um, Angler's Journal. I, I contribute to them quite a bit when I get a chance and I've shot something that's maybe for a brand, but it's really cool. Maybe it's not like unlaunched material, so it's okay. I sometimes will be like, hey, can I send these 15 to 20 images to this? Sometimes this magazine will get a writer and they'll write a story for it, which is just cool. And I love that. And the last two months I've, I've been in the magazine. She said, I'd like to like have you on Instagram as contributor kind of uh, like of the month, kind of just showing you as a a spotlight basically. And I said, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. I'm I'm open to it. So I sent them a bunch of photos to put up and they make, make a carousel. But one person had made a comment, of course, comments, generally all my comments on my photos are usually quite positive because I'm just posting my own personal photos and I'm not getting involved in things. Why are you reading comments? Yeah, I know this one. Cause usually I'm like, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Like I, it's like people I know too, right? Like it's followers of that. I know or people in the industry. This one guy wrote my mom. It is my mom's my number one fan. And generally everything is because my mom's going to uh, look at it. But, um, this one guy wrote and it wasn't negative in it, but I read it and I was like, that's weird to say. He said, um, can you great photographs? Imagine how you'll be when you have more experience or something. And my comment back was, thank you so much. After 15 years of shooting, I can't wait to get even better. Like 15 years is a long fucking time. Let's be honest with you. Yes. That's, half, that's more than, you know, that's a long time to be doing one career. Um, I'm trying I'm not to think of like, how like, is that compliment? Was it backhanded? Yeah, it's like a backhanded compliment. Snarky? And I think also, no, I think also maybe, maybe in his brain it was, maybe it wasn't meant the way it came out, but maybe it was meant to be like, look where you are and I, I can't wait to see where you're going to be in 20 years from now, maybe or maybe, something. Yeah. yeah. You're I brilliant don't know. I'm now. Trying to, you're going to be I'm more to, brilliant later. <laughs> well, I'm trying to like make the best out of it in my brain. And I'm like, you know, and I don't want to sound arrogant about it, but I I'm like, I feel like I've made it now. Okay. I don't need to keep proving my damn self. Well, okay. So let's look, <laughs> you know? let's look at that flip side. What, what do you want to get better at? Like, do you have a goal where you say, like you're taking out the film this year, do you say where I want Jessica to be somewhere in 2025 where she's not today? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I want to actually get better at trying to maybe integrate flash into portrait work on location. Okay. Something I really don't have time to do right now. But I'd like to do that just because I don't know. It just seems different. It seems more National Geographic. It seems mm-hmm. like more just like curated. That would be cool. Um, I feel like every photo shoot after I've done the shoot, I can always improve on things. The one thing that this main company I shoot for, 
um, two, two of the guys there were like my main champions who have followed me throughout my career to various places and always tried to pull me in. That's the thing with my industry is as soon as someone, you're somebody's, they want to bring you wherever they might go. And people in my industry move pretty lateral between companies. So it's like, I might not then shoot for somebody for however many years until my person gets there and then I'm in. And so one of the guys last year, we, we were on a Zoom call and he goes, I want you to get weird. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, shoot the most creative the most out of the box, the most strange, just like whatever you need to do to give me something I have never seen before. That is what I take to each shoot. And that is what I try to improve on. So if I need to shoot under something, over something, through something, around something, if I need to do a shot that is asking a saltwater fisherman to release or, or a bass fisherman to release their bass like a trout, I will do that. Because it's different, it's not seen in the industry, and I want it to stand out, and I want it to be so different from this, the, these images we've been looking at on the front of like fishing magazines and right. grocery stores. Um, See, that's, so I would think that's that's yeah. where a flash, a slow shutter speed. Yes, right? but flash has been used in my industry for that stuff so heavily over the years that now I tease people about flashes on boats. <laughs> Really about like, like, what if you start to like, I mean, right. If you're thinking weird now you're gelling stuff. If you're doing like set it to tungsten and you use, you know, Calvin set, like you really go, totally, really go totally. To the extreme. And I'm, part of what I do though, unfortunately is, um, I deliver on quantity as well. Due to social media, I'm not delivering 200 images to a company. I'm delivering 1,200 finished images to a company. I'm shooting, on average, for a four-day shoot, upwards of nine to 10,000 images that I have to cull through because I have to shoot, 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 shoot every angle, every aspect, and a lot of it is sequence, you know, the cast perfect right. in the air so it's like you're it's heavy shooting and unfortunately what i'm shooting right now doesn't allow for me to slow it down and curate it so that's been part of the problem is i want to integrate this but it has not allowed me to slow it down yet to curate it so i feel like it's going to be a very particular shoot where i can then take my time and be like i'd like to light a little bit of this hey can i make you hold a softbox for a few minutes please mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and i think our ability to have this very like um I have some LED panels that are small in, that I can hold in my hand. And I've done um, some Bassmaster Classic boat launches in the morning where I'm on dock and I'm just hired to document and it's dark. And so between my headlamp on my head and my LED light on the side, I can shoot some off camera, not flash. It's just easier to hold an LED and right. they're powerful enough. Um, so I'm able to do a little bit of it, but really sitting down and curating something for a photo shoot for say a magazine or something, I'd love to do that more. I, I would like to be able to incorporate that, but I'm not there yet because I don't have time. So what I am doing is this film thing for 2023. I'm just going <laughs> to do my own film project. I don't know if you're going to see it. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know how long. I mean, I did my first shoot of the year in Mexico a couple of weeks ago and I actually could not take a camera down there. It was a brand new client. It was a big client and it was a big shoot. And I was like, I don't have time to faff around here. I need to just like go and shoot and not be pulling a, a you know, a medium format yeah. film camera and be like, Hey, I just want to do something personal Excuse here me. for a minute. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a time and a place. So that that's basically it. Um, 
But yeah, I just want to be better at that and keep keep telling stories and being able to tell stories. Um, tell and, me this. And, when did you decide yeah. to get in the water? Okay, so there's a little misnomer. Like it's, I don't want to lie to you. I don't have to get in the water that often. Right. But like, okay, so but the camera. in the water. Well, yes. Okay. But the camera, so, right? Because that was yeah. always, that was new the housings were so expensive and- okay i thought you meant like me swimming no, and i'm like no, don't no, God, you no. could ask anybody and no. i'll be like i'm not getting in that fucking water <laughs> and they're like what i'm like i lean over the boat a lot and shoot yeah. with my split housing and a lot of the time we have oops a chase boat so i'm able to like line it up sure so i actually got my first underwater housing this is crazy because it was so expensive it was the company oh, out ridiculous. of california yeah i mean now it's not that oh, crazy yeah. now it's, but now it's now it's relatively inexpensive which relative is, yeah. yeah i mean we could get I something for a thousand dollars it used to be oh, seven yeah. eight thousand dollars so i actually have it on the wall over there my first housing and it's a surf housing and it's um del mar underwater housing they're no longer in business this company actually a lot of them kind went of under. went yeah. yeah there was they were custom-made house um so they actually i had it made from my nikon d3 pro camera so the fact that I had balls to put a D3 in the water at the time, because that was my most expensive camera I'd ever purchased was just $7,000 and I had to buy it on two credit cards and then pay it off. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> buy things on credit cards, maybe when you're not making a huge income, but I managed to get it done and that's, that was fine. But, um, they had a D3 in their office. Otherwise I was going to have to ship it to them and then they would custom make it to the camera and then ship it back. But I think the housing at the time was $3,500. This was back in 2000 and gosh, 2008, maybe. Yeah. Eight. 2009, 2008, 2009, maybe, because I was still NHL stuff, 2008. And then 2009, I started to do all this, um, this work. Uh, with the fishing lodge and I was like this could be really cool to add this in with this fishing lodge Mm -hmm. and the year after I shot for them or sorry I shot for them on this one tournament then the next year they called me in in the winter and they were like we would like to build a photography program around you at the lodge where you basically are a souvenir photographer where you sell people clients you build them books and um that's where I took my school of hard knocks was being a souvenir photographer. If you ever want to feel less than in life, become a souvenir photographer where people like throw their black Amex at you and they're like, whatever. And they're not nice. And they ask you to go fetch them at the same time, which is like, what? (laughs) I'm a photographer. Um, My favorite is when they ask, when people ask me what else I do on the side. And so I always say, well, do you ask your accountant what they're doing when it's not accounting season? Um, So anyways, Yeah. So I got this housing made and, and that, so it was a long time ago. It was right at the start that I got the housing made. And then when I went to Panama with the housing, it was really cool. Surf housing off of a boat doesn't make sense, but I would hold it upside down, which would give me this much extra length because of the, the pistol grip on it. Right. Cause the surf housings have a pistol grip on it. So I'd get about this much extra length that I could lean over the side of the boat when we had a Marlin on and I could shoot a Marlin being held on the side of the line underwater. And that was really cool. And some tuna, like if we were by bait balls of tuna, I could just lean over the side of the big offshore boat with this pistol grip, get hit the waterline and below and shoot it. And I think I had a, it was built for a fisheye, but I actually managed to put a 20 millimeter F 2.8 fixed lens in it. And that was a beautiful little setup with a big, heavy camera. And I mean, a D3 is not light. No, that's a brick. Um, 
and yeah, because you have megapixel that beautiful Marlin camera. shot that you've got that people talk about. You know, where he's just being released and the bubbles are coming out, and it's just perfect coming up. Framed. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of that stuff is original stuff I shot. So when I um, went to Panama and I started shooting for this Canadian company and then I met my husband randomly (laughs) a year later, uh, we started dating and I ended up working for his company. So he had a private timeshare buy-in, 10 owners, 10 shares. And I kind of switched gears and started shooting for him and for his owners. And it was really cool because I ended up spending close to five years shooting in Panama. When you spend a lot of time doing one thing, 200 days a year of fishing, you get really good at it. Yeah. And if I was to jump on a boat of offshore boat right now and like think I could shoot Marlin the same way I shot it back then, no, it would take a little while to get into keying of seeing, okay, that line is coming up. I know exactly where it's coming up. I know exactly where I need to be. And I always like to be on down on the deck because I think the perspective looking back up at the fish is so much bigger than if you're just shooting it from the tower, you can just see the fish and then you just aim and shoot. And I just don't think unless you're shooting down at your angler ang- like fishing or um, with the, with the angling, I guess is the right, right word. Um, <laughs> and the fish jumping to show action of the boat. Like it just, it loses it. So, um, uh, you know, when you're able to put in that much amount of time, you can build up a lot of stock. And at the time I was not, I was shooting weddings in the summer and then I was shooting this Marlin stuff for these, these, these private clientele. I couldn't work in the United States. I wasn't a commercial photographer here or anything. So, you know, I think that um, I had a backlog and I still do of stock images that I still can sell the magazines today, even though they're nine, 10 years old, taken with a 12 megabyte or megapixel camera. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So you've so, switched to mirrorless now, though. I've seen you with Z yes, stuff, right? I have. So um, it was a really tough decision, but I came at it slowly. And about when Nikon finally released their first mirrorless, um, I was I was like, okay, I'm going to buy it. If I hate it, I just will sell it. Okay, so you know? why, why you waited for Nikon? Obviously, you're a Nikon shooter. You're loyal, but why not maybe three years ago tapping into Sony? So originally Sony was having a lot of overheating problems. Okay. You remember that when they first came out and they didn't have glass for a long time either. Yeah. But I so mean, it's so the A1 heavily, and, you know, the, the Yeah. Well, seminar. I mean, the A1 just came out. Yeah. I think I've, I've had the Nikon since 2017 or 18. Okay. Whenever they dropped the Z6 Six? and the Z7, the original. Okay. Seven or maybe those. 2008, 2018. So here's the thing. I liked being able to see my image live and I liked the flippy screen okay. and having a live image on the flippy screen. Now you're going to laugh at me, but the nope. flippy screen, which I call it because I like to call it a flippy screen has changed the way I'm able to shoot effectively. Like it's allowed me to get 99% more shots in focus than all the blind angles I would always have to shoot from Uh super low on boats. Like I can't always lay on the boat floor to shoot up leaning over the side of the boat and shooting back to my angler. I can't see what I'm shooting. So you shoot blind so much and you're like, you look at the back of the screen, you're like, Oh no, I didn't nail focus. Okay. Try again. And this is before eye tracking and all this. Right. 
So I had actually bought a little Sony a6500 to do some video because I was getting very interested in learning some video. So I was playing around with the camera, but it was really slow to boot up. And I had tried out some people's Sony's when they've been around me and I've taken photos, but I was never wowed by the colors. And to this day, I am not wowed by Sony's colors. You got to help that camera along to get the beautiful image that it can create. You just got to nurse it a little Mm -hmm. bit, right? I own a, a Sony a7R4. Um, and then I own the rest Nikons and the Sony a7R4 comes on every shoot with me, but I have two lenses dedicated to it. And the reason why I have it is because Sony made a, that 90 mil F 2.8 macro lens right. and it is beautiful and it's very sharp. And at the time Nikon has taken a really long time to roll out their Z glass. So because of that, um, I was like, you know what? I like this macro lens enough to buy a body. <laughs> so I had the Sony a7R3 and now I have the four right. and I'm not going to get the five or the A1. I don't need to do that. The, the Sony a7R4 is a beautiful camera and it's massive, massive files. Yeah, <laughs> so, huge. Um, yeah, so I either use a 28 F1.4 uh, uh, Sigma lens on it or I use the 35 F1.2 Sigma lens on it and I have the 90 mil with me. So I maybe take one of those primes with the 90 and that's always in my kit when I okay. go on my shoots. Um, but yeah, I stuck with Nikon because I had so much invested in it so I could then start to adapt the glass. And yeah, I, I slogged through Nikon having crappy auto, autofocus for a very long time. And so it wasn't until two years ago that I finally shipped my pro body Nikon off to KH camera to sell. I finally was like, okay, this is the last one to go. I got rid of my D850, the D810, the D850 for people who don't know Nikon is an iconic incredible camera. I mean, I don't know if you could have made a better DSLR. Honestly, it is one of the best cameras I've ever shot with. And I probably shot, you know, 350,000 images with that darn camera. I'm surprised my shutter still worked on it. Um, it's just a great camera. It's just beautiful. It, it functions every way you needed it to function. And, um, so the way I look at it now is I'm not necessarily cameras product specific. I'm whatever equipment I need to add to my arsenal to make me a better photographer. Um, so I just never went the Canon route. I've played with the, uh, the, the, you know, Canon's, um, uh, a five, uh, five or five D Mark three or the right, five, right, right. when those series came out and you could actually do video, like that was revolutionary. That camera changed the way cameras started to be made. And then next thing you know, everybody starts rolling out with their video. Right, right. Um, and so I've played with all those cameras and I think they're great. And I don't, I think you could literally put any camera in my hand and I can create beautiful images with, I would hope so. I would hope yeah, I could do that. Right. Give me your iPhone. I'll change a bunch of settings. And I actually do a lecture on iPhone photography with fishing related. And I, um, I usually, and then hand it, everybody hands me their damn iPhone after it'd be like, how do I put it in raw? And I'm like, so I think that um, being so heavily invested in one brand made it a little bit too financially daunting for me to go, okay, I'm going to jump ship to Sony at that point, which I didn't really want to. I don't actually like the ergonomics of the camera. I don't think it's very well 
it doesn't feel nice in your hand. It's a brick. It's a brick. It does its job and it says thank you, collects its paycheck and goes home. It's not a beautiful design that you really like that I I hold and I'm like, wow, that actually feels really comfortable grip for my hand and stuff. So do you have big I hands? think about that kind Small of Small hands, long fingers? Tiny little hands. Okay. And apparently Nikon originally was created to fit the hand of a woman originally. Well, I don't know if that's true, but I heard that as a fact a very long time ago. Huh. So that might need to be fact checked. Okay. Um, I have tiny hands. So for me, um, I just um, have always felt so comfortable with Nikon in the menu systems. Oh, and I mean, yeah, are- Sony, Sony menus are just convoluted. Oh. And yes, I have quick menus. And yes, my, my Sony camera is basically set up the exact same way my Nikon camera is with my quick menus. And I set up all my... Um, my extra um, like one, two and three button on the Sony. Like I have them set to very specific stuff. I actually shoot all manual. I don't shoot shutter speed priority. I don't shoot auto ISO. I am all manual except for the underwater housing that is auto ISO Um, just because once it's in there, you got to choose what you're doing. And I don't really need to change it a lot when I'm in there. I'm really on one or two, two settings off maybe. So, um, so yeah, I'm not going to rag on Sony. I love my Sony um, and I like shooting with it. And I love, you know, when I've shot video, I actually shot a whole film with the original Z line and it was in a major film festival as a feature film. So, I mean, you can create whatever uh, you're totally focused on and you can do a good job at it. If you know what you're doing is the way I look at it. Right. So T- talk about that. You you when did you start to dabble into video? When did that become well, something like you're like, oh, next level? I think YouTube University was that problem because I do suffer from gas, which is gear acquisition syndrome, right? Like I am I love new tech. I love gear and that all falls back to those film cameras. I like clicking things and 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 shutter slaps and all that uh, which actually my new z my z i shoot with two z9s in my kit and they're like an insane camera and um uh there's no shutter on it it's all electronic yeah, it's so crazy so it's it has weird a for fake you. noise all, yeah it's so weird and there's a fake shutter noise i'm like well, they could have programmed it to be like a cat's meow or something um and the fake but, shutter noise uh, is crap it oh it's awful it yeah it always, right. it's embarrassing yeah it's embarrassing but um, I was watching a lot of YouTube. So I watch a lot of YouTube, but I'm on the, I'm not watching like people jumping off buildings, YouTube. I'm watching gear reviews, how to edit, how to do video. I'm, I'm just somehow found myself on a path of watching video and watching mirrorless cameras and video. And I was like, that's cool. That would be kind of fun to be creative. So I ended up getting this <laughs> Sony a6500 and just making short little videos just playing around and then soon I, I was getting asked by clients at this point your cameras have video capabilities mm-hmm. so now clients are like can you just get a couple video clips too and I'm like sure what else do you need me to go fetch your coffee I guess is going to be the next thing you're going to ask me um so I started to see that the industry is changing in that regard and I do believe if you don't adapt you'll die like a dinosaur and that's oh, why a yeah. lot of these older guys in the industry are gone now because they weren't we weren't going to adapt out of film to digital they right. just weren't going to do it it was too too out there for them or they so treated you don't digital adapt, like you- film and they didn't realize they had to get stuff out immediately Yes. Yeah. And because, but it also like, think about it, you're getting paid a ton of money to shoot 
a few photos and you usually can't, you usually don't deliver your photos to your client within like, it's like three weeks maybe with film. And then it's like, you're delivering like 20 selects, but now the standards are different because we can shoot high at the, we, they bulk, they want more for their money. And yeah, I'm mean, my industry. That's the way it is. If you are a very specific portrait fashion photographer, it's probably not like that. But for mm-hmm. me, it's heavy content, as much content as possible because they have so many different places they need this content to go. And every day they need content. So all the time, all the time, it's never ending. It is never ending. And so, and I'm okay with it. I'm just adapting to it and I choose to adapt to it. And so I got the Sony a 6,500. It's a great little camera, the whole a line of little, they're fun cameras. And I was shooting and, and people were then asking for video clips. I'm like, yeah, I could take it with me, but I was really annoyed with how long it took to turn on. Like Nikons are just on, (laughs) like you're talking about like in an industry where I don't have a second, I need the camera just to be on. And, um, autofocus was okay at the time. I think they then released like two more cameras after that in the a line i can't remember but um so soon as nikon released their mirrorless i was like okay if they're wanting me to shoot video well this is my avenue into it but just took them a really long time now a couple things nikon doesn't really um make a new camera every year just to make a new camera every year they give you firmware updates so the cameras i had then I don't own the Z7 and Z6 anymore. I have the Z6 II uh, and then Z9s. And so um, I have two Z6 IIs, two Z9s, which are their flagship camera, and then the Sony. And because of those firmware updates, those cameras aren't the same as what they originally were. So when right. everybody absolutely just bashed them and teared into them, it's like, hold on. They gave us, they're still giving us firmware updates yeah. for a four-year-old camera. And it's changed it. It's like night and day different. And yeah, maybe the eye tracking won't be as eye tracking as, as, as Sony, but you know what? Um, generally Sony's won't track a fish eye. So I don't know what to tell you. It doesn't matter all the time to me. Like I literally need mass body tracking. Don't lose that body. Um, and so, yeah, I just uh, had suddenly the capability with that Z seven or Z six. I can't remember which was the first one um, to, really incorporate quick video and the nice thing again and i don't again you know i am i guess a nikon fan girl because i'm I'm heavily invested but i do find when i quick uh on my sony when i want to go into video you either press the video button and you wait a second or you hit one two or three where i had like 4k uh 24 frames i i two would be um you know uh 1080 120 you know three would be whatever i'd have it all set so just you hit you toggle it to one and I'm already ready to go. Um, there's a delay. And if you're a Sony shooter and you've only ever shot, shot Sony, you won't, you won't notice it. But when you come from Nikon where you hit a, you hit your switch and it's on, there is no delay. So Nikon, I think Canon has it now too, where I, on the outside of the Nikon, you just hit the switch up and it goes to video. Mm -hmm. And then you hit the switch down, it goes back to stills. And then So that allowed me to quickly, like I would bang off the stills really quickly and I'd hit it to video, press record, follow, 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 follow. Okay. Records off back into stills and the versatility and the hybridness of it, I guess, allowed me to get more content for my client in a way that I've never done before. That was like, okay, well, I can only do it with this one mirrorless because I only own one mirrorless. And that's the goal. And yes, you could shoot. Yeah. And yes, you could shoot. 
is to make a happier client. I want them to call me again. Right. Um, and you could do video on your DSLR, but the tracking wasn't this. It's not the same. It's the image on the screen does isn't as fast. You know, it's your limit. You're highly limited. And yes, people have made really creative work with DSLRs and, uh, you know, with your, your, your Canon 5D Mark, whatever. Um, but it's night and day different once you get into phase detection, autofocus and everything. Um, so I'm really excited where the industry is right now with cameras. I think it's definitely a faster learning curve for people. Oh, but yes. um, being oh, able to God. dabble in, yeah, but being able to dabble in film, I find to be fun. But so I made this film back in 2019, and it was in 2020 in the uh, Fly Fishing Film Festival, which is the largest film festival for fly fishing in North America, and it's owned by Warren Miller. Uh, corporation oh and um my my film was chosen to be in it and um it was uh really cool unfortunately 2020 as we know it was not on location (laughs) it was uh you had to pay for it online and watch it everything so it was a little different but what did i miss (laughs) i don't know but there's a balloon above us right now so i don't know what's going on um and so um i shot that film it was a lot of work i shot it in christmas island um, I went there to shoot a film. I said, I'm going to do this. I went with a group of people I know. I I hit up sponsors afterwards. I shot a film. I shot content for a magazine and I shot stills for a brand. I put a lot on my plate and I made it a very undesirable um, experience for myself. And after I finished it, I was like, okay, I could keep making personal short little films, which maybe I'll do at some point here. I just honestly haven't had time. I've been just really busy working commercially. Um, But there definitely is a reason why film productions have a lot of people on it. Oh yeah, they do. It is a lot of work. And I I came to realize that, yes, it is a lot of work to be the only person with all of this, trying to get every angle possible. And you feel like you're kind of lacking in everything. You don't feel like you're excelling in each part. Right. I wish I had an Coming audio guy. Coming up with guy. the storyline. Right. I wish I had or, a producer. Or the second shooter. Yes. Second the second shooter. shooter just to get another angle. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did that project. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of where it went. I'm proud that we had the first all-female cast of anglers in this in, in the fly, um, um, film tour. Um, you know, I'm the second female director, filmmaker, producer person to have a film in it. So, um, yeah, I think that was great. A good check mark, pet on the back, made a goal of in 2020 that was on the list, like my film is for this year. And I did it and I thought to myself, okay, I want to keep doing what I love to do, which is stills. And so, Last year I got hired for a bunch of video work, but it was all very like clinical. It was like, okay, it was a a lot of talking heads and going through gear and equipment. So it was very different. I wasn't, or I made short 30 to 15 second ads for a clothing company for online only. So I'm not out here trying to pretend like I'm this insane editor and filmmaker. I'm bumping my way through it. And, but it's um, a tool. I have the capability. Right. But it's a tool in your toolbox. And for young photographers, they need to realize, you know, I I use this analogy a lot when I lecture is you don't want to be a buck knife, right? And only shoot, you know, fishing or you only shoot football or you only shoot hockey, but you want to be like a Swiss army knife and have multiple tools to be able to do stuff. So for you picking up video, that gave you an extra wrench. 
And again, when I have clients saying, hey, can you do this for us? I'm as long as I feel like I can do a, a good job at it and deliver you know, talk with them about what they're really looking for and the expectations mm-hmm. and I'm going to do it and I can offer it as an extra. So, yeah, I have definitely done that for some clients and then some clients like my main one I shoot for every once in a while. But they're finding a lot with the algorithm that if I can grab a couple clips on my iPhone, a video you know, a vertical those actually do better. So quickly I'll do that for them. And again, like if I can add this into my product and charge appropriately for it, uh, there is so much value in it. And I don't want to die on the vine. I don't want to not adapt enough in this industry that one day I'm not relevant because I am 40 and I am photographing mostly. I'll run into YouTubers at Bassmaster Classic. I'll go to like the largest fishing event in the United States. And I'm like, they'll come up and introduce themselves to me and they're like, Oh, we really love your work. And I'm like, thanks. And I'm like, who are you shooting for? And like, Oh, I have a YouTube channel. And I'm like, cool. And they're like 20. (laughs) So, um, I see what's coming and that's cool. And that's great. But I think that in the end, my experience in everything I've shot, hopefully will put me at the front of the list for a client who is looking for quality, who's looking for a really experienced person who's not going to fuck up the shoot. Right. No, that's key. So I've had horror. I've yeah. And I've heard horror horror stories. They'll be like, oh yeah, this one, like big companies will hire someone and they'll like, the person will get sent to like this really like remote Island somewhere where it's cool and fun. And you're on this tropical shoot and they'll get hammered and they won't, show up for call in the morning. Right. Like I can tell you right now, like I like my wine when I'm here in Montana, but I can tell you right now when I'm on location, I, I go like, I'm there to work. I'm there to get the product done. I'm not there to faff, faff about faff, faff around. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to, I want to give them the best product because every image I take, my name is stamped to that. Mm-hmm. And that means a lot to me. That is actually the biggest thing. And uh, I just did a shoot two weeks ago where huge client for me and they did not want me to do any image selection or culling or post-processing. And I'm like, wow, okay, but you'll pay me that? Okay. I can't say I really like it. It was a great, I think the shoot went really well. We got beautiful imagery. I can't do anything with the images. You're never going to see those images on my website. You know, that's content I shot for them, exclusively for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And we won't see it till product launch. And I have no idea what they have selected. I have no idea how many they have selected. I have no idea how they're going to edit it. And that scares me. So I am working on losing that control part and realizing that sometimes those larger clients, that's just how they, that's how they work. And some people hire me for the look that I can produce for them. And some people hire me. And then that job in particular, I think was a specific job that I was hired for because of my experience, because I can go and do that shoot. Right. And but that says a lot about you you. That says that they trust you to produce what they want, regardless whether it's your style or the art director or the creative director said, do this, do that. They pay you the money and say, young lady, give us a hard drive. We're done. 
You can see it when the program comes yeah. out. The catalog they, or whatever. They walked away with the yeah. hard drive from the shoot. Like right. literally I handed it to them and I, and they would go through it every night to make image selection. I'd be like over, over his shoulder looking. I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't do this. And I finally said to him, cause he, the one guy said to me, Hey, those images you took of like the one girl walking by the palm leaves, like that's not really our style. And I said, Oh, I absolutely know that. I said, but my flow is I keep shooting. So if I have to be goofy for a minute with my model to get her like excited or get her like laughing and I got to be goofy, be like, walk through the bushes and just move them away like you're a model or something. Like I will do that. I'll shoot those frames. But I said to him, you have to remember most brands would never, ever see that content. And he goes, and he goes, oh yeah. And I was like, I would have called that out heavily. So you wouldn't ever see it. You're seeing me at my most vulnerable here. Sure. You're seeing every missed focused frame or actually, I, every time he was, you're new. You know, yeah. You're every really, time he was, he was, Oh, totally. You're just, it's just open for interpretation. But the one thing is every, cause I, every once in a while I look over my shoulder and I would be like, look at that histogram. And he would start laughing. I'm like, nailed my histograms like every time. Because at this point with mirrorless cameras, that's the one thing you shouldn't mess up anymore is your exposure. So, you know, like you might, you might lose your autofocus, but you better be nailing your histograms with uh, the, the fact that you can see it live. And so I, every single time I did look over his shoulder, cause I told him, I can't watch you do this. This is too stressful for me. And he actually think found it pretty humorous because that's just not something I do in this industry. And so Anytime I was like, man, but look at that histogram. And I'm like, can you just zoom in? I just want to see how sharp that, oh, look how sharp that was. <laughs> no, it's and a, so, um, it's a very difficult thing because you are really stripped down. I mean, it's like taking the, taking the robe and throwing it and standing there nude with your camera and working and going, okay, please don't judge me in the moment. Wait till I'm done. You know, it's, it's really exactly. rough. It's rough, but that's how a yeah. lot of upper end certain clients that's how they roll that is exactly how it works and that's that's and and i'm just one photographer out of many photographers they would hire to shoot different aspects of their brand and they they have some pretty damn big names shooting for them so for me i my husband said when i got home and i was explaining to him he goes cash that paycheck and smile and know you did a good job and you did your job and that was it and so Um, I know we got beautiful imagery out of it. I did what I, and I, I told him one day, I said, um, cause we were talking about it and he didn't really have experience in the industry of the fishing part. And I just said, I know we're not here specifically for that, but I'm good at this. So if, if let me direct these people, I'm this, I'm really good at this. And he was like, okay. And I said, you're really good at knowing how all of this needs to look on them. But like, I'm good at this. So I got this and he was like, okay, okay. So, you know, I think we made beautiful imagery, whether or not it's perfect for what they're looking for. I hope so. You know, that that's harder to know um, if it's not articulated, but I know, uh, you know, for any brand in the industry that I shoot for regularly, um, I think that we would have had more than happy clients. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a great experience. It does suck though, to shoot a lot of really nice photos and be like, Oh, never see the light of day. But Bye. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. So that was my warm up of 2023 and being like, okay, well, at least I haven't had to edit this whole week. I've had a week off, you know, um, walk me through your so. process. What's your thoughts when like you're, you get, you're leaving on a shoot soon. What are you thinking? How do you, 
you know, it's yes, keep yourself fresh, but and understand your style, but maybe evolve a little bit. Is each client kind of different? What's your thought process? Yeah. So, um, I, I don't really think about the shoot specifically about like, if I'm going to get good photos or not, like I already am rolling at a high anxiety level as a human being, but that's the weird thing. The one thing I'm not really stressed out about is I know we're going to create good imagery, I just hope, you know, I can't do anything about weather. I hope I have um, anglers that are at least enthusiastic and excited because that can make it just a really long, challenging day. And when I have someone who doesn't want to participate, it's like, uh, well, why did you show up? Like, just go home. I'm better off shooting my boat driver who's just here to drive my boat for me, <laughs> like, uh, which I have done before, <laughs> where it's kind of like, I'm not getting what we need out of this guy. So, hey, could you pick up a rod and wear that clothing for a minute? I ain't going to shoot you for a minute. Um, or someone's <laughs> sick on a shoot and you can't really get them. If they're sick, you can't really get them to be motivated. But so my process is I like to really communicate with the company I'm going to shoot for. I don't like going down there blind about uh, knowing where we're going to be. I actually really like to know, okay, day one, we're shooting this day two, we're going to shoot that. Maybe we need to flip them, but this is what we're doing. I don't necessarily need a whole shot list from you because some companies will send me a shot list and it's like hand on reel, a 45 degree angle and um, casting to your left. Like, I feel like the creative aspect of it is it's okay. It, that's taken care of. Um, but I don't feel like that I need a written out list for list for list, unless you have this one advertising shot you need. And it's so specific that I need to shoot it. Cause generally those are all the shots I'm going to take anyways. Right. right? But I need to know brands. I need to know names of the brands I'm shooting. So sometimes I'm shooting multiple brands within one company. Mm-hmm. So whether that's a bunch of different rod brands within one company or a rod with a bunch of rods with a bunch of names. Um, and I need to know um, the reels or the line or the baits or the lures or all the different sunglasses or whatever. Like I like to know what I'm shooting. And I also get sent on shoots a lot where I don't have a representative with me. Sometimes it's just me and the angler and we range the time I get sent with an outline of what we're needing to accomplish and we go and do it. Especially during COVID. It was mostly me during COVID. Um, I, I like having a brand representative there because a lot of the time I don't, I'm not in, I, I always say this to them. I'm not in your weekly meetings. I don't sit there at the right. launch of a product. I don't know the specifics behind it unless you tell me, I don't know what makes that so special unless you tell me, and I'd love for you to tell me so I can key in on it. But that's why it's great if someone does show up because not only do I have someone to hold a camera if I need it, because I'm in an industry where they won't pay for assistance, <laughs> um, but, or I'm at a time of the industry, like a time in photography where it's like just as light as possible as possible, you know, as, as light as can be head to your shoot. Um, and so um, if I have a representative there, um, it's great because that also allows me to, um, have them and have their ear and be like, would, would you use this rod for this form of fishing? Or um, what do you think about this shot? So I, I like actually having a creative person with me because I think more creative minds can just make better stuff. Sure. Sure. And, 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 and looking at me for six to nine hours a day, expecting that my brain can function creatively for six to nine hours a day is just crazy. And so sometimes we'll get past fish number 20 and I'll look at the whole group and be like, anybody got an idea of how to shoot this fish differently? Because I am, I'm done. Like my fresh out ideas. 
my brain is shut off. And so sometimes an angler will be like, hey, I always thought this might be a really cool image. And I'll say, hey, let's try it. I have no problem with it if it's always in, if it's inserted at the right time. Sometimes when I have people over my shoulder and they're like, oh, could you shoot this angle, this angle? And I'll start to get a little bit hangry and annoyed and like, just, and Back just away. like, yeah, okay. Like, so I, I can be a little bit, uh, a little testy at times when it comes to that. But for the most part, it's like, yes, if I have the client there with me or, or a represent, it's always a representative in the company, they're big companies. So it's not like I have the president of any company there. There's no reason for a president to call me as far as I'm concerned. Like yeah, just the right. marketing people need to keep calling me. <laughs> like if the president calls me, I've done something wrong, I think. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's just kind of how we work. We And then um, like I just went over, before I talked to you today, I went over a call for the Monday shoot, fly in. Um, we're going to meet Monday night. We'll have dinner. We'll go through our shot list for the next morning, show up on location. We've got the models and the boat captain all lined up and exactly what we're going to be shooting. And he said he didn't make a detailed, detailed list. And I said, that's totally fine. Just outline products so we can at least tick products off the list to make sure we didn't miss a product. And we'll flow from there. And that's kind of how I roll. And I don't know, it's organized, disorganized. Like it's it's always organized. I just like in terms of I want to know where I'm going to be, what time and when. I don't like it when people are late. If you can help it, do not be late for the photo shoot because the sun doesn't wait for you. Right. You're not special enough. Right. You're not that special. <laughs> if- I'm not that special. <laughs> it's not waiting on us. So we need to go. It's like, moving. It's moving. Yeah, exactly. It's, God. <laughs> I, I've had some, one guy called me once. He's like, I'm at the gas station. Do you guys want coffee? And I'm like, dude, the sun is coming. And we're now at the boat ramp waiting on you. And the sun is not waiting on anybody. And then it's going to rain all day today. So if you don't get your butt here, like. Coffee doesn't do so, me any good. Um, yeah. If- yeah, yeah. Well, coffee on shoots does me good, but coffee here, no. But um, so yeah, that's just kind of how it rolls. Um, that's the format I'm in. Um, it hasn't always been like that, but that seems to work really well for what what I'm shooting now. So yeah, where you're at now, if money yeah. was no object, what would you be shooting? Uh, editorial magazine pieces of like really cool people and their crafts, showing them in their environmental portraits of what they do and how good they are at it. And just trying to do like black and white, cool images of them. Like Angler's Journal did a, has a winter edition out right now. And I have um, it photos in it. And then someone wrote the story separately, but I had actually submitted a lot of black and white images. Now, none of the images are shot in black and white. They're all shot in color, sure, right? Sure. I just happened to make some edits in black and white. They actually kept all the original black and white images. And I was like, so when the magazine came out, I was like, yes. I was like, hell yeah. Uh, two years ago, I had a goal to have a film image, a film image published in a magazine. They didn't even know it was a film image. It was just a really cool portrait of a black and white taken on my Leica. And it got published in the magazine and they didn't even know it was film. And nobody asked because it was scanned, right? So it's like, um, if I could just editorial, like I love getting covers. I love the idea of somebody or thousands of somebody's or hundreds of thousands of somebody's physically holding an image of mine in their hand. That is cool. That That is is just like... That is what I, I I wanted as a photographer was to have a photo in the newspaper. What is like the Vancouver Sun newspaper? Like 
that to me is the coolest thing. So I've dabbled a little bit in writing at times with help from editors and written some stories and gotten stuff published. But for me, like putting together a cool photo essay and then I, um, I'll, um, email the editors I have relationships with and kind of pitch it to them and say, this is kind of the background behind these photos. And then a lot of the times they can find a writer to write the story, or I find someone to write the story or someone was on the trip with me who then I could assign to write the story. And then we submit it as a piece. Yeah. And um, yeah. And it, I think there's few magazines that kind of let you do that, but this, the smaller like quarterly magazines that are more niche that are looking to make more of a coffee table magazine than just a monthly throwaway. Right. Um, and so, you know, magazine financially, they, they, they can vary from $90 a cover to $2,000 a cover. So I pick magazines that I want to be in and I send only certain images that I find um, that I really think are a beautiful image that maybe the, I know a commercial company wouldn't use because, well, I shot a beautiful artsy image, like a gorgeous landscape with a fisherman. It's all silhouetted. And I know it, maybe a company only is tech, but I happened to see this image. So I had to shoot it. Well, if that's the case, then I I'll find a home for it. As long as the companies are okay with it, I'll reach out to them and be like, Hey, you mind if I throw this, like this on the cover of something for you? Like this could be cool for your advertising and, it's kind of my passion. And so I'm really lucky to work with some companies that are like excited about that for me. And I appreciate that because I'm in a very special spot with that. Yeah. With the copyrights and NDAs and all that, you know, everybody wants to overcomplicate it. And I just want to have pictures on magazines. <laughs> Best photo <laughs> you've ever taken. I have to pay taken. my bills. Oh man. Um, well. If someone man, says tough. to you, uh, Jessica, Make me a print. I want to hang it in my office. What do you, what, what, yeah. what, what print is that? What do you, what do you give me? Well, I'm trying to think of like, so I have, um, I have very, it's funny. I have all the reject prints in my house. They're all like, I used to, I have a large format printer here. If anybody wants to buy it, it needs to go. I, I don't use it thing. anymore. <laughs> yeah, it just needs to go. It takes up so much floor space and I'd love to put a bookshelf there. Um, so I would say like my most favorite image I've taken, maybe my most favorite on film is a shot I took of my dad in, um, I actually have a series of the negatives um, on a contact sheet framed on my wall and it's him holding a mug with his westerly hat and it was in studio and I shot it on like a fancy Mamiya, one of the nice Mamiyas <laughs> um, in college or in um, in uh, photography school. And I love that, th that series of images. Um, I'm really proud of the image I have up on my wall right now. I've gotten a lot of comments about it. It's this, these horses in, um, Wyoming that are not wild horses. Everybody's like those wild horses. And I'm like, anybody can go take this image. I just happened to go there and get it right at the right time. Um, there's, I, for me, it's not so much necessarily the image. It's the moment behind the image. Right. It's, what happened to make that image that makes it more special for me than actually physically taking the photo. So um, I have a beautiful image of a killer whale coming up with a rainbow behind it. But I was on the boat. I was on a little raft by myself up in Haida Gwaii, off the coast of Haida Gwaii, super stormy, rain shower coming through and a killer whale pops up 
next to me and a rainbow is happening. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm by myself and the lens is so covered in mist from the rain that I am snapping away. And and in, in uh, Photoshop, I had to really bring back everything because of how much it was fine mist. Thankfully, it wasn't large drops. So there was no distortion in the image, but I had to really bring back colors. But I love that image because where the hell would that happen just randomly? So that's what makes images like special for me. Or I have these um, images of these three ladies from Peru, these portraits hanging in my house that I had to pay them to have their photo taken, rightfully so. You know, we don't want to just, you know, they want to get paid. So I paid them money to take a black and white photo. But like that whole experience, I was by myself backpacking in Peru. I was sick from a bacterial infection in my stomach. I was trying to make my way. I had altitude sickness at 15,000 feet. And I ran across these three different ladies and I took their photo. So that's what makes photos like special to me. It's not, I could take a beautiful image, but it might not hold that weight if it wasn't something momentous happening. There's just so much more behind just clicking that shutter. Every image for me generally invokes a moment in time of my life. Yeah. All right, so tell me the one that broke your heart, the one that got away, out of focus, didn't develop, blown shutter. I mean, there's so many Marlin ones that could have been insane. Marlin ones. It's like the fish jumped the wrong direction. Um, there was a, a it, roll Marlin. of film that... Face. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, or, or they jump and then suddenly water sprays up at the wrong angle and you're like, no, that could have been perfect. Um there is this one time that I remember I messed up a roll of film and there was a, an image that I took that I think was really beautiful and it was really basic. It was just an, a long curving dirt road with a really old, old truck that happened to come up the road and it was black and white. I think there was hills in the background, beautiful trees. And I remember taking this series of images and thinking, oh, this is really beautiful, like this car. And I remember how I messed up the roll in the darkroom and I lost all of it. And that today, like that was a long time ago. And that today I always randomly think of when I'm like shooting film. I'm like, oh, I messed up that roll. Could have been. My my husband always says that I'm going to have to sell some sort of um, Ansel Adams and then we'll become millionaires eventually. And then we can just do whatever we want. And I said, so, you know, he had to die to become a millionaire, yeah. right? Ansel, we know this. That Ansel was images not, are not. Yeah. He ended his career. Yeah, doing like workshops. his images are now worth yeah. millions. <laughs> yeah. But he's not here to enjoy it. So um, my professor, but there is one, my yeah. professor worked under mm-hmm. him. And when he, Amazing. At, the end, at the end of his career, you could have gone to Carmel and, and when he was teaching workshops randomly on weekends, you and I could have just walked up on a Saturday and taken a three-hour workshop. And you could have bought so cool. moon over shit, mm-hmm. whatever, Mexico, whatever it is, for, for, yeah, like, 50, yeah, yeah. for like $50. Yeah. Print, That's amazing. Um, I mean, I think what's so special about his work as well is just how incredible uh, – metering he was in the zone system and his printing. I mean, it's, this is is insane. And when you go back to shooting film after not shooting it for a while, you're like, wow, I really mess up a lot. (laughs) You're like, wow, I don't have a handle on any of this. It's so good. We don't shoot in film anymore. Um, I have no zone system whatsoever. No, no, no. I'm like, okay, the light meter shows this. We're just going to shoot this. So um, I don't know. I think that um, it's interesting. I think part of, 
me having a hard time telling you articulating what a favorite image is, is because of how heavy I have to shoot now that I shoot a lot of images. And um, when you come out of a shoot with 5,000 images, are you going to, unless you get one that's like, wow, that's really a special moment. Um, you might've gotten some beautiful, you got beautiful imagery, but like those really special moments happen very selectively and they don't happen every shoot. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about something where you're like, oh crap, that is a, that's a very special image. So, um, I definitely think I've gotten them, but it's hard after hundreds of thousands of images to pinpoint. But I think also like I have a, I have a Marlin photo that I'm really proud of up on my wall and it's of a Marlin jumping and it's blue eye is looking directly at me. I was in a chase boat. And at the time I was photographing my husband's boat and I didn't know that was his boat. I didn't know him. And I it was my very first Marlin I ever saw. And he radioed our captain. He knew that I was photographing and we had the company I was shooting for. Their clients were with him that day for some reason. I don't, they rented him or something. And so he called up, radioed our captain and said, you can back in if you want. We have, we're going to have control of this fish in a second. Like he read the situation and I had a big 300 weight and I braced myself and I've never shot Marlin fishing. And I see this thing. It looks like a dinosaur. So I'm spraying and praying. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm just taking every action photo I've ever, every experience I've had shooting NHL or MLS soccer, or when I shot CFL football or a couple NBA games, when they'd visit us in Vancouver, I am just spraying and praying. And, um, that fish comes up, it turns and it's looking at me and I have it blown up big in my studio here. And I'm, I've actually got that shot on two different covers and, I'm really proud of that image because I had no clue how special it was. I had no clue that you generally don't have a chase boat when you're offshore fishing that usually they're not, you don't ask your boat, the other boat to come back in that close. The everything lined up to allow that to happen. That has never happened to me again. I've never had that opportunity to shoot that specific type of image again. Wow. So it just that that's special to me. So like that image, like that image of a marlin jumping, it's not technically anything insane. I just sprayed and prayed, but right. everything had to come together to allow that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's tough when you shoot so many. I don't know if you find that. I mean, you just take so many pictures. It's like I have thirty thousand images on my damn iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> it's so like, true. So true. But I, I did when we first started. I did tell you I ordered something, so I have a new camera arriving uh -huh. Monday. I have decided. I convinced myself the other day that I, I don't take my cameras really out of my case when I'm home. I clean my gear. I put it back in. They are my work tools. Maybe I'll grab one once in a while, but I actually don't have a feeling of wanting to grab out my big cameras to take pictures at home up my driveway. I usually use my iPhone for it. And I've had smaller point and shoot mirrorless cameras before. Um, and it's more of an opportunity for me to grab a film camera. But I decided that I would be grabbing, um, a, I, I would purchase the Fuji X-Pro1. Or X Pro three, oh. sorry, X Pro three. So it's a three year old camera, um, and I've shot with a Fuji before years ago, and I love the nostalgic look behind. I love Fuji; I think they do a beautiful job. But I was like, you know, I want a rangefinder digital camera that's not a five thousand dollar Leica. I would love one, but am I really going to spend five thousand dollars on a point and shoot camera oh, just Q2 to like, you know, 
you know, I know the Q2 is gorgeous, but just like, am I going to buy it just so I could flash it around at coffee shops? Like, I'm just not going to do that. I just financially, that's just a terrible decision on my part. So, um, everything's sold out right now. It's so hard to get Fuji, um, 100 V the new food, the small point shoot, mm-hmm. which is, um, a fixed lens, the Fuji XE4, that's all sold out. And I've always loved the look of the X-Pro series. I wanted an X-Pro one originally when they first launched just as a fun camera, but they were really expensive at the time. But the X-Pro 3, I mean, it's not cheap camera, but I want to have it with one prime fixed lens on it. So I got the 18, which is equivalent of a 27 or 28 or something. And that's going to be my fun camera. So I'm going to, I'm excited. It arrives while I'm gone. So when I get home, that's going to be the, I mean, it's not even that small, but um, I would like just to take that around and be able to get back to just shooting for fun more when I have an opportunity to. Good. So we if do I'm going to have that, you know, as photographers, we need to do more of that. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm the same way. I got a cases full of all my gear in here, but it's like, do I really want to break out all my cases to go shoot one moment, which is the worst thing to say, but it's true. It's a lot of work. It is. And I like the, uh, the Fuji looks, the presets they have of film. Yeah. I'm shooting film at the same time, but I like that idea. I actually like the idea of shooting presets on JPEGs and just wirely transferring it to my phone and posting it that way for fun. Like <laughs> I'm actually okay with that because I'm basically doing that with my iPhone. Right? right. So, um, I, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited. I just thought I needed a little bit of a change this year. Um, I'd like to document more on my cycle bike rides. I'd like to kind of tell more stories when I'm out on my gravel bike and I'm, you know, venturing out with a friend. Um, I I don't know. I just want to shoot more. That's not just my iPhone. That actually is a little bit more beautiful depth of field kind of looking. That's kind of what I'm, what I'm wanting. And I love range finders. Um, and the EVF, I used to own the original Fuji X-E1 and it was slow and it was awful and the autofocus was terrible and the EVF was weird and they have definitely improved greatly in the whole Fuji lineup and everything. Um, and so I, um, yeah, I like the idea of being able to have an optical viewfinder along with their EVF on it and you mm-hmm. can go back and forth. So if you want to shoot more traditional, you can. It's a very niche camera, um, but I think I'm their niche. So <laughs> I fit into, I'm the, if you want to sell me something that is like old school, retro, yet still functional, I'm your person. I'm targeted so well on social media by ads. I'm I'm the perfect person to target. I will, I will snap onto that. So yeah, that's like kind of just what I'm hoping for and, and shoot a little bit of that and, and just enjoy the process again. Because it's not saying that I don't enjoy it. I right. love what I do. But I'm also love having a camera in my hand at most times, but I'm not loving taking a huge pro body with me to go to the park with my dogs. Right. Yeah. It's a beast. <laughs> yeah. And I want something a little nicer than my iPhone photos. Right. Um, so. If you yeah. could be queen for a day, what would you change in the photo industry? Man, um, I don't know. I think that I just get, you know, I've said it before. I just get bogged down with the fact that I think people focus too much on what they want to do rather than putting in the process behind it. And so I wish the photo industry would fight to keep magazines and newspapers alive. So I'd love to change that. I'd love to show the value in that. I think though, um, for the most part, 
the cameras are becoming so incredibly capable and so intelligent that there shouldn't be a bear to being like insanely creative. So I'm hoping to see different kinds of imagery. Now I'm hoping that industry really sees how amazing it is and how amazing it is to shoot with these cameras and able to like translate that to, um, to, for us to start seeing that product, you know, right. see it from time to time, but you know, I, I don't know. Maybe that queen for a day. I'd probably just live, eat, eat <laughs> delicious food and, I would go buy myself a Leica Q2. I can tell you that right now. And then I'd buy an M10 and I'd buy an M6 film camera. And, you know, I'd probably buy the silver version of the Q2 just because it's extra flashy. Yeah, just so you can lay it on thick. Yeah. Just so I can just, you know, just just hold it out there and show it off. Um, I did start looking at some of the digital Leicas and I was like, you know, financially, like, yeah, you can buy um, an older Leica digital camera, but you're still going to spend drop. I think at the bare minimum, it was like three grand. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, but do I want that old of technology where it's so far behind? Well, I'd just be frustrated. That's what I thought. I, right. I was like, I'll have beautiful Leica glass, but I think I might just be frustrated with the I'm not great at manual focus. Like I feel like I'm just slightly blind, <laughs> just not focus peaking at all. Um, and so uh, I just, yeah, I kept looking at them and I kept looking at used ones off KEH and everything. And I was like, you know, financially, I think Fuji, you know, as coined the poor man's like at times um, is just a better financial option because I think I'm going to be happier with how the technology is newer. Yeah. So that's kind of what I, I thought about it. And, and when I, again, to spend that if kind I'm of money shoot and be a Leica, frustrated, oh, that would drive you nuts. Yeah. Or just be limited a little bit. If I'm going to shoot a Leica, I'm going to pick up that beautiful M3 I have sitting over there because for what? me, Leica is film. And maybe I'd want to get an M6 one day where I have like a bit of a newer system of loading film. Cause it's a little slow on that Leica. But like for me, Leica is that film camera is like, you can't, you can't get more pure Leica than that camera that I have there. That original camera from the the sixties. Yeah. So, that's straight up. The, um, that is what Leica is. That is what it is. That's the cream of the crop. And guess what? That camera does not have a little red dot on it to make you famous, to make you popular right. at the coffee shop. No, it's just, <laughs> so it's a Leica. It's, a, it's just a Leica. You would never know it unless you saw the top of it or unless you're a camera geek. So, exactly. um, so yeah, queen for a day. I'd make some better backpacks too. No one seems to be able to make me the right backpack out there. I've gone through so many. What are you, okay. What are you looking so. for? What do you need? I want to have a pocket I can still put my water bottle in because everybody seems to get rid of that. Um, I, I like the inter interchangeable camera units. I'm definitely on that. I'm on the put in a unit, pull it out, and break my bag down. Sometimes I'm on really little planes where even the backpack won't fit in the overhead. Mm -hmm. But if you pull the core unit out and you have it zipped up, it's much smaller. You can fit it in. Then you can collapse your whole bag on top of it and put it in the top. Just get on an Alaskan Airlines flight and they look at you and they're like, that won't fit. You need to a la carte it. I'm like, just watch me. I got this. <laughs> and so um, 
I I want some better straps fitted for women's bodies. I find that a lot of the time I'm a I'm five foot nine, but I don't really have a long torso. It's all in my legs. That's where the tallness comes from. So for me, I have short arms and a short tor- torso, and um, a lot of the most of the backpacks, almost every backpack is 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 uh, obviously their fit models are dudes. I mean, they're not women. We right. let's be honest here. Um, I actually just finished my uh pro team staff with f-stop it ended this year and i've now purchased a shimoda bag they have arm strap or um arm straps specifically that you can order if you're a woman you can choose it if you want and so that bag hasn't shown up yet so i'm interested to see how that bag is and waterproofness why can why do we just make them dwr like coated why can't we just make them waterproof? What is wrong with people? Like, I just want them waterproof. When I'm sitting on a boat and I'm eventually waterproofness goes away. It only lasts so long. Right. But if you make me a bag made out of waterproof material, I can tell you that's going to last. My batteries have gotten wet. My drone the other day through four layers got wet because of the amount of water I was around. And so I do travel with Pelican cases and that's primarily how I shoot. But I usually have to have my backpack with like an extra layer in it and put my batteries in it, my drone and my cards in it. And that kind of just sits off to the side. And so just a really waterproof backpack, like truly. So I actually washed my F-stop bag the other day. I washed it from the salt water and I resprayed it. So I hope for this trip that will last until this new bag arrives. But, um, and that's no fault of them. It's just, it probably costs more, probably right. costs more to, to, to manufacture it. And, but I would like that or just really just make it as waterproof as can be and have a, a pouch for my water bottle. Well, I know the <laughs> owners of Think Tank, I'll, uh, I'll give Doug a call and let him know and get in touch with you and say, Hey, yeah, I've never, I've never ran Think Tank. I actually have a Think Tank insert in my new, PK something Pelican. It's not a Pelican case. Right, I but it's the insert. Uh, was on it. The insert. I was on a shoot in San Diego. I landed in San Diego and the airline smashed my Pelican case. It didn't smash where things broke, but all the latches and buckles, it was barely holding on when it came out of the thing. Like the, the, it was broken. And so I was like, Holy well, crap. crap. Yeah. Well, I'm like, what did they do to break a Pelican case? So I'm in San Diego. I find a camera store. I call them up. They don't have exactly what I need, but I go in and I look and they have this brand I've never heard of made in California, just outside of San Diego. It's PK something or P mm-hmm. something. And I open it up and there's a full think tank built out insert top lid, everything. It's actually looking really nice. And I was like, okay, well, it's actually quite a bit more due to the fact that it's got this beautiful insert in it. And I had no choice. I needed to buy it. It's a bit bigger than what I would normally use. But now that's become my like travel packing one. I I roll a Pelican case on the plane with me just for my cameras. And then the underwater housing and drone and everything goes into this one I check. And so, um, yeah, I really like the insert. I think it's actually very functional. It's got great zippers, waterproofing on the inside of the lid, which I always define super interesting. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just really uh, nice. And so I have never really looked into the think tank line that much uh, because I was on contract with a couple different bag brands right. over the years. And now I'm not, it just, they said they, they're changing up their pro line and they said, you can either opt in or out. And after dealing with two waterproof issues where I was like, you know what, think i just need to find something different and there's no knock on them they do a great job but it, but for what i do it's just so specific right. that i think it's just not excelling for me 
Yeah. And I don't want to just get a dry bag where I roll up a dry bag. That's not functional as a photographer. You no, can't it's like not. You get in, get in and out of a dry bag. Yeah. That does not yeah. do you any good. When I grow no. up, I so. want to be you. I appreciate that. But like, I'm not like, it sounds like I'm really passionate about what I do, but my life overall, like outside of that isn't insanely exciting. Um, You're you're married to a Texan. You live in Montana. You got a yellow lab. You still have the yellow lab? Two. We have a white lab. Yeah, we we have a white lab and a yellow lab. We almost lost the white uh, about four weeks ago, but thank God she is okay. How? Uh, She had a, a, we were, I was skiing, cross country skiing with them and suddenly she just didn't look well and we got back to the house and she really wasn't looking good. And just something seems super off and she's seven. And so we were like, this is weird. And then finally I made the call at night. I was like, we need to go to the emergency vet. And we were visiting my in-laws place. We were three hours from a, from a city. And so husband loaded her into the car and he had, uh, we had a friend's dog, another dog, and then we had a mule and a horse up at this area. So we, he couldn't just like go, but I could go. So I was like, put her in the car and I'm going. So in the middle of the night, driving through Montana winter, Got her three hours, got her to the emergency vet. Turned out she had a tumor on her spleen that ruptured. No idea she had a tumor growing. Had a liter of blood in her stomach and they did emergency surgery. They did a blood transfusion and she's alive and with us today, thankfully. And the tumor ended up being benign. I mean, it's just like crazy. <sighs> if we hadn't, if, she, if, if I hadn't taken her in, she would have not lived through the night. So I have a white lab and a yellow lab and one's recovering, but she's doing good. And um, yeah, I love living here in Montana and it's geographically undesirable for most of my industry. I don't really shoot a lot of fly fishing. It's now mostly conventional, right, but luckily yeah, people are willing to fly me places. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're much more out in the water, you know, Florida or something like that. Yeah. than you are in a Canyon shooting a river runs through it, yeah. which is interesting. Or shooting. But that's just the industry. Well, I think the fly fishing industry, yeah, the industry wants to sell the dream of fly fishing too, which a lot of the time the dream of fly fishing is that like saltwater look and the blues and those kind of colors. And so I think the industry really leans into that. No, more, no matter if their largest um, customer base is trout, it's like um, sunglass industry. Their largest customer base is probably bass in North America, most likely, if they are a large company like Costa, for example, right. yes, their largest customer is bass. Their largest fisherman in the fly industry is trout. It is. Uh, but who do they market to? The dream, the aspirational, the the people that meet their color palette, which is offshore blue Florida look, and that's where right. they're based, right? So it's just knowing kind of, um, uh, you know, I, I'll have one or two shoots in Midwest or Montana kind of area um, or on the West in Montana Um but a lot of the time I'm on coastlines or I'm in the South shooting um, to kind of fit those color palettes for the companies. And I never knew that was a thing until that started happening. Brands love their colors. It tells stories. Yeah. And they don't always want to shoot fall because it's very designated that the kind of puts them in one spot at one time and they Mm -hmm. can't use that imagery as widely as they want. So, um, so yeah, a lot of the bass I shoot, I shoot a ton of bass and I'm not at tournament shooting tournaments. I don't do that. I shoot the commercial products, but, um, I'll shoot a lot in the South. So we go from, uh, Georgia, um, Texas, um, Kentucky, um, part of Louisiana and then Florida. Um, those are kind of the main players and then we'll head up North and we'll do like New York or Michigan, um, 
And so not a lot of bass in Montana. So we don't really head west for that. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's interesting in that regard. But um, are yeah, you, I enjoy it. Are yeah, you keep keeping up with your YouTube channel? I am. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would, I would actually love to do more educational components. I actually tried to launch a workshop right as COVID started. Unfortunately, we sold out two workshops in Louisiana for learning to like photograph fishing photography. And I actually opened it just for women um, and sold out two back-to-back workshops and then everything came crashing down. And I just really haven't had the motivation or time to be able to think about relaunching that anytime soon. I love the educational part i love it when people want to talk about like learning and learning about how to do something mm-hmm. uh, photography guys i just don't have the time and when i have time i'm spending it with my family or i'm doing or i'm on a bicycle really <laughs> out in the ma- i have like nine bikes in my garage it's becoming an issue i have a lot of bikes oh so, boy um there's a seven step yeah, program like, for that you know <laughs> i'll get you i know gear acquisition uh, gear acquisition syndrome i'm just i'm 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 stuck on it, but, um, so I just, uh, time is finite and, um, with my dad just over the years really has knocked it into my brain that no, we don't have a lot of time with people. So I'd rather spend it on things that are either I'm making my income off of fully, or I'm getting a lot of value out of it. And YouTube, it was fun, but I actually would rather watch other videos because I don't have time to sit and edit the videos and do that. So nor am I great public speaking um, for YouTube videos. I go like kind of monotoned. If people wanted to see your work, where are they going to go then? Instagram? Well, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Instagram is not my portfolio. Um, No, it should be your fun place. It's my fun place. So um, Instagram is going to be the most up-to-date and current. Uh, Haydol Photo is my Instagram, my maiden name. Um, it's the most current with like what I can share from other companies. Right. But um, I have a website that no one seems to go to, but every <laughs> once in a while. But yeah, like as a professional, you should have a website. Isn't it um, funny? But we, we have a website, but no, I look at my traffic. Nobody goes there. Yeah, like, no one goes there. Well, it's not because I'm not writing... It's because I'm not writing blog posts for it or whatever. I am um, uh, hosting, uh, co-hosting a workshop this year in Alaska. Um, it's a grizzly bear workshop. I went to it last year to, uh, we, we went to Sess out the area. Um, and so there's that. And what I've that? written some blog posts for that. That is Kodiak. Oh my gosh. Kodiak. Oh gosh. I'm losing my brain. Hold on. Hold on. I will tell you the exact name of it just so I don't mess it up because knowing me, I'll, I'll, I'll mess it up. Well, it if is the dyslexia, Kodiak, you'll get it wrong. Uh, I'll say it backwards and upside down. Kodiakphotoworkshop.com. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. We went to Sess Out the Lodge last year in the location and hung out next to Grizzly Bears, which was crazy and very outside of my realm of like what I do, but I really enjoyed the process. So this year we're going back with... Um, uh, full full sold out group and then next year we're booking for next year so that's always super cool um but yeah instagram if it, and i always say if people have questions other than what camera should i buy and what lens should i buy um feel free to reach out and talk cameras with me um but if you do ask me what camera you should buy i can't i don't know there's so many cameras out there and i don't know you and i don't know what you do so um but if you start a conversation i can maybe help you with some some information but otherwise i'm googling spec like you are so um but yeah i'm uh i'm just out here in the industry doing my thing you're doing a great thing great thing i am so glad that i was able to grab that magazine saw your name you know we we're able to connect because 
I love your work. I really, really like the way you put the viewer in the boat or next to the fish or in the moment. There was, there was something you did where, uh, what was it? I had written uh, casting for recovery and you're with, with all these ladies and it was just fantastic. And they were all happy and you made these beautiful images. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is what we got in the business for. It was really well done. I think that's like capturing photojournalistic moments is just what I really try to do. And yes, you'll get your hero shots in there and dynamic looking imagery. It's easier to make dynamic looking imagery with a wide angle lens really close to your subject and a lot of moving parts like water and stuff. But I I, I have to say, like, I really hope to capture those in-between moments. So I I had a company um, reach out to me. They really wanted, wanted me to create some images for them. And they loved, they actually, they, they had a board of images. They emailed me of stuff they liked. And a few of my images were on the board. And one of them was me high-fiving somebody. Yeah. They loved how I held my camera and came through the scene high-fiving. Because I actually genuinely get that excited for people when we're doing something where it's like not just our regular run-of-the-mill photo shoot, but maybe they just caught their first billfish and they are stoked and they are excited. And I will get so excited for them. And so... I actually have a series of high-fiving people. I actually make make a note of trying to high-five people while I take a photo of it because it's a record for me too. And they really, the company liked that imagery because it's like breaking that third rule, right? Like mm-hmm. coming through the lens and, and, and adding yourself into the scene. And I'm not the first person to do that or make that up, but it's just like, I try to make a point of it to be like, if we're going to be shooting their genuine reaction, well, there's a lot going on and everybody's really excited and I'm just as excited. And you get like the best look from the person when you do that, when you're already like high five and you just, I just keep shooting. And that's the thing is just don't stop shooting. Just keep your finger on that shutter and you're going to get great stuff. You'll make great content. As soon as you chimp, you won't, you'll miss something amazing. <laughs> it's so. gone. Just like that. <laughs> that's with that fuji x x pro 3 the the screen flips away so you can't see it unless you were to flip it down in the most awkward weird flipping position ever and you can't rotate it or anything like that so i'm actually looking forward to that not be having the ability to chimp uh, regularly self-control thank you for taking the time to do this i really i really had a great time i love your work like i said and you know uh you just keep doing what you're doing because it's great stuff. I appreciate it. And sorry it was so long and um, no. it was hard to nail this down and everything. I, it's fun. I love talking about it because I don't, my husband doesn't want me to sit and talk about photography gear with him. So <laughs> that would be his worst nightmare. He'd be like, what? Why are we having this conversation? Like, he doesn't want to know about it. Like, he doesn't want to look at it. He doesn't pretty much know what I buy half the time. I'm like, no, I got it. I got it. Well, it's all my my business money anyways right so yeah. it's just really funny because i'm like oh no you don't worry about it yeah. so um yeah it's so it's nice thing, to dear. geek out you, with somebody yeah, it's my thing dear yeah just, you just go over there and leave my box alone and i'm just gonna open it up when i get back for my trip yeah well that's why i have a studio so now it's all my things in here and 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 whatnot so would, would it be classified but as a studio it. or a man cave yeah so, it, well, I mean, it could be a woman cave. Now, I did, I have a bunch of his fishing rods in the corner and I have a bunch of his tackle. So he can set that up because I like him being in here when I'm working and then I'm not editing by myself all the time. Um, but I definitely think it's more of a studio space. It's It's got a feel to it of like 
artsy artsiness. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's mine. It's all mine. Maybe you need a Wayne (laughs) state hockey, you know, trophy or something Um, in there. My God, we never won the trophy. I've got my diploma on the wall, but um, we never won a trophy. We weren't that good. My goodness, we were terrible. Um, I have a world record in fishing, so I have a diploma of that up on the wall. And um, everything else has a story or it came from my parents' old house or my dad's skis I just mounted to the wall the other day. I used to ski on them um, and I put them up and everything in here has a story and a piece to it. And that's what makes it fun. I, I it, I've had the space now since 2017. We built it off the side of our garage and uh, I can't believe I have this space. I'm just really grateful for it. And it's a beautiful space to work in. And I'll, if I've shoot some, t- I've shot some tabletop stuff for some companies and I can light it and shoot it in here when I'm forced to do lighting inside. Um, but uh, I saw that. Yeah, video. I, I used to print. <laughs> yeah. And I used to print, uh, but this printer needs to go. And I actually I offered it as a donation to the local photography school in Missoula. There's a Rocky Mountain School of Photography that mm-hmm. looks like a pretty cool program. I actually emailed them the other day and I said, would you guys have any interest in this large format printer? Like it's still it's great printer. Do kids print today is what I said. And they uh, respectfully declined it. And I was like, okay, now what? It's not like it has great resale value, so I don't know what I'm going to do with this thing. Okay, I know. So I, I just had him on my podcast. He's going to come out in a couple weeks. Tommy, he's the university photographer for Montana. I'll ask him. Oh, okay. I'll ask him if he's interested. He's 35 miles a while away from you. Yeah, because that's the thing is it's, it doesn't really have great resale. Now, Walgreens has the same printer in it, and that's no hit on Walgreens. They just don't know how to use it, right? right yeah, but it's an incredible – yeah, and you, you can run um, – you can canvas through it. I've I've done my own transparencies for light boxes through it. I have uh, – you know, it's a, it's a really great printer. Um, I just find now when I originally got that printer and spent a lot of money on it, we're in a whole different – place in our lives with the ability to print online and i use bay photo or whatever where they literally will ship it to you the way it needs to be or it goes straight to my client if i sell a print which i don't do a lot of that anymore so it's just just taking up a lot of floor space and i really want to put in a nice bookshelf to house my photo books (laughs) thank you for doing this i really do appreciate it thank you i appreciate it too and thanks for reaching out and it was it was a very lovely chat All right. Next time I'm in Montana, I'm looking you up. Sounds good. Yes, please do. Let me know when you're here. Okay. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jessica. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember, you can follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram and find all of our past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.